I'd like to plug the Chase Thomas podcast. Listen to Chase Thomas. You'll be a smarter sports fan and obviously a much better human being. Matt Chernoff from 680 The Fans, Chuck and Chernoff show here. And I want to say thanks for listening to today's episode of the Chase Thomas podcast. You can find it on Apple, Spotify, and all your favorite podcast apps. Chase Thomas went to Parkview in North Georgia. He's a local Atlanta kid, and he won't let the Luca versus Trey thing go. He interned with us back in the day, and you'll always remember him. Anyway, definitely go check out ChaseThomasPodcast.com where you can find all of Chase's previous episodes, all of his articles, and do him a solid. Leave him a rating and review if you're an Apple Podcast listener. Reminder to listen to our show, Chuck and Chernoff, Monday through Friday, 3 to 7 on 680 The Fan, and subscribe to my podcast as well. Welcome to Matlana, wherever you get your podcasts. Chase Thomas podcast. The Chase Thomas podcast. Um, my nephew needs me to record. See, I hate. I already hate it. I hate it. All right, hello, and welcome back to a, another episode of the Chase Thomas Podcast, where I'm still the aforementioned Chase Thomas coming to you live from Knoxville, Tennessee, up there in New York City. Yes. Fangraph Zone, John Taylor, as he fights laughing every time I, I do I just, it. it I, I just, because then I, it just automatically makes me think of Matt Berry saying it, and in nothing, there are few things as reliably funny as that. It's it, amazing if, that he's the bit and all that stuff still... It's still working. We're on what season five of that show? Season four. Yeah, there you go. Yeah, I mean, and it's, it's still, still it's still just as funny as it was from the first moment. One hundred percent. Um, one hundred percent, folks. Go check it out. Free ad for Hulu and FX. Just go w- watch what we do in the shadows. It's always a good time. Yes, always. If you need a if you need a quick, easy, dumb laugh, it's probably the best show on TV at doing that. It's also just the boldness of turning colin robinson into a baby like a lot of shows do not turn their maybe probably funniest character right i I don't know for me he's the funniest that's that's tough he's one of them either way he's an he's uh he's a big figure he's a big funny figure on the show and to just be like we're turning him into a baby for a full season and uh that's just what we're doing and then it just not missing a beat is no it it somehow it somehow works and also gets dumber than you'd think it would (laughs) which is really something the episode of him going to the office is still one of my favorite television episodes of all time. Like the one with him and Vanessa Bayer together. Yes. Is I think is that the is that the same one? Yes, where they're both yeah. um, they're both they're, energy vampires, yes. yeah. Oh my goodness. There's nothing like it. That's that is a very enjoyable twenty two minutes of television. I really love in the season two premiere when he mm. summons the ghost of his grandmother just to do an updog joke <laughs> on her. Uh, that was that was truly that was very special stuff. Mm-hmm. It was. Um, the show is just special. So go uh, go check that out. And uh, Guillermo, get back to work. Um, John Taylor. Gizmo. Yes. <laughs> um, speaking of getting back to work, Major League Baseball got back to work um, this past week in terms of robot umps are now coming to all of triple a this year john now that you've had a couple yes. of days to think about it what uh what are your thoughts on triple a now going full robot umps in 2023 so, what i find interesting about it is it's something mlb is doing that every team should be pissed off about hmm. because to me at least what we've learned about about the automatic balls and strike system as it exists so far that mlb has used throughout uh both the atlantic league and then into the low minors is that it's not bad. It's not some disaster, it, it, I mm. don't think, anyway. But that it's not exactly... Well, I don't... 
it, it's not exactly clear if it's necessarily any better than the system that already exists. Which, on on the one hand, I guess is kind of setting a low bar because there are plenty of umpires who you know they at least at least once a night, probably closer to five to ten. There are, there will be a balls or strike call where you just kind of throw your hands up and go, "What is what? Are, what are you even seeing there?" Mm. But I'll, for the most part, most umpires are pretty good at this, and most of those missed calls. It's, I mean, consider what consider what most of the missed calls you see are, right? They're mm-hmm. not the ones that are so blatant where it's like a ball goes right down the middle of the plate and it gets called a ball, you know? Mm-hmm. Unless, like, for some reason, C.B. Buckner, Angel Hernandez is working the plate. More, more often than not, the umpire you get is going to call pretty much all the obvious calls, right? Mm-hmm. The, it's going to be the borderline stuff that ends up causing the most controversy. Is an automatic ball and strike system going to be necessarily any better at that? What happens with and and I th- some of this is not knowing the specific details of how it works, but I'm curious. Like, how can you determine a ball at the very corner of the strike zone? Like a, a you know one of those very not standard, but like one of those uh, on the black fastballs that clips the outside of the strike zone. Hmm. How much? What percentage of the ball? What portion of the ball needs to be in the mathematically defined strike zone that ABS uses for it to be a strike or a ball? And that's something where we have, you know, there aren't many major leaguers who've had that much experience with it, but there are a few that have, you know, did rehab in the minors last year. One of them was Chris Bryant, and he said something kind of similar, which is this gray area, the borderline calls, like, how do we know that the robot's really essentially any better at that than the umpire? Like, hmm. what is the determining criteria there? In that case, is it 51% of the ball, 66% of the ball, a full 100% of the ball? If If any portion of that ball is not in the strike zone, is it all, is it... On the one hand, this kind of starts to sound like a, a kind of stone, like philosophical discussion in like a dorm mm. room. But on the other hand, this is stuff that like I, I don't know how you essentially program that. I don't know how mm. you figure out a system to deal with the fact that baseball doesn't have hard edges on stuff. That you know there are hard dimensions and hard uh, measurements in terms of you know this many feet between the bases, you know, this many feet between the the home plate and the mound. But on the other hand, you could do pretty much whatever you want in the outfield. Mm-hmm. One outfield is 37 feet tall. And, like, that's not to say that's exactly the same as on But, like, I don't know how you take into account the fact that baseball has these kinds of vague spaces and quirks and, you know, that it isn't this hyper-rigid thing, you know? Mm-hmm. I, I don't know. And I think part of what makes umpires feel... And I don't know about you, but I, excuse me, whenever I think about, you know, yeah, it would be nice if umpires were better at this, but then I also think about the, but then for some reason I still hold on to the idea of wanting an umpire. I think Mm -hmm. there's just something kind of integral to a game played by human beings being monitored and judged by a game or by human beings in a sense. You know, the replay review is one thing, and I think that's genuinely a good idea, even if I don't think the league has executed it all that well sometimes. Mm -hmm. And I understand that automated balls and strikes, at least half of AAA next year, is also going to be equipped with a challenge system similar to the one that they use in tennis with uh, Mm the Hawkeye, I think it's called. Mm -hmm. That, you know, the the thing that pops up, the graphic that pops up on the screen in a tennis match when someone challenges an in or out call and Mm -hmm. then shows, you know, the ball is either in or out depending on whatever exactly the rule in tennis and 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 i'm sure that whatever the rule in tennis you know that is for in and out is probably going to be similar to what the automated strike zone would look like anyway but all of which is to say like i i don't mind that umpires still exist to do that job because there are the strike zone does not necessarily need to be a very hard box 
it has always been fluid for the most part, you know, and for the and for the great majority of time and in the great majority of games you will see, the umpire will call a regulation strike zone. I think part of this too, I think, is instead of an automated ball and strike system, what I kind of prefer here is just that there's more accountability for umpires for when those kinds of calls happen or for umpires who are consistently worse at other umpires than calling at calling balls and strikes that those umpires don't work home plate as much for example hmm. you know angel hernandez is a guy who is consistent uh, he, angel has many many problems as an umpire but one of them is that he is a terrible balls and strikes guy he routinely during a game will make at least one call where you just throw your hands up and go what are you looking at and yet he keeps working mm-hmm. not only does he keep working he's been working for quite a long time and that's also true of guys like cb buckner or Laz Diaz, like all the bad umpires you can name for the great majority of them, they call pretty rough ball and strike zones, but they mm. keep working. You know, I, I, I don't, I appreciate, and I think maybe there is something to be said about, I don't know, I don't really like the idea of challenging balls and strikes either, because I mean, part of the game forever has been if you argue balls and strikes, you get thrown out. Mm. I, I know this is technically different, but I don't know. I, I like that part of the game. I, I like that there's that weird friction of it. If you want to make a version of the game that's more accurate, fine. That's, I guess, a thing that is, you know, that's something that is good to aim for. Part of me does. Part of me kind of feels like MLB wants an automated balls and strike zone because they don't want to deal with the umpires anymore. And in particular, they know how strong the umpires union is, and maybe they figure this is a good way to get rid of some people they don't like. But I'm particularly cynical about MLB when it comes to this stuff anyway, which, like I said, teams should be pissed about this because an automated ball and strike, we don't know how accurate that thing is when it comes to mm. balls and strikes. We don't know how well that's going to work. The, the, how well are you going to be able to trust walk rates, for example, for pitchers in AAA next season, knowing that an umpire is not, or, or knowing that the automated ball and strike system is in play and no one has actually studied what the effects of that have been? Mm. I mean, I think this has been the case for a lot of what MLB has done under Rob Manfred is kind of obviously the Atlantic League has been used as a guinea pig, which I think is honestly kind of just disgraceful. The the Atlantic League is not supposed to be a science league. It is independent Mm -hmm. league baseball. It is its own thing. But it's also been the case with the low minors and now into the high minors, stuff where I understand there's no baseball testing laboratory. You know, it's not like there's a a test kitchen, like a Bon Appetit or something, where you cook up strike zone rules. But, like, there has to be a way to try to figure, like, instead of using actual games that matter, or at least in the sense of, you know, this stuff matters for organizations is how guys do in AAA. That Mm -hmm. still matters. Like, that ability to, like, or, you know, messing with that really to any degree, and I think automatic balls and strikes invariably are going to mess with that to a certain degree, just strikes me as rather unfriendly to the product itself. But I don't know. I also, I mean, for me personally... It also doesn't mean so for the folks who think it, like, this is coming soon to Major League Baseball. That's not not. what this means. No, because this has to be collectively bargained, and the Players Association has made a lot of noise in the past that they are not, and the players especially, that they are not particularly interested in this becoming a thing, and understandably Mm -hmm. so. Pitchers don't want it, and it would put a lot of really good defensive catchers... If not, that's what I was the, also going to say. Like framing's out the door with frame, this. Yeah, and that's the, and that's the thing. A lot of guys whose careers have been extended or whose careers have been essentially created through being really good pitch framing pitch framers, which is something that catching has rewarded and mm. determined to be useful to the job since the literal creation of the, both the position and the strike zone. All of a sudden, that's not going to be an asset. Catchers are I, catchers are essentially going to be. Well, I mean, I don't, I don't want to speculate to what's going to tur- what catchers are going to turn into. It'd be really funny if we were just all right. Now everyone is going to be Jorge Alfaro. It's just going to be the yeah. biggest, nastiest arm you can get behind the plate. 
especially given that uh, all the ch all the rule changes coming that should make stolen bases a little easier to attempt and succeed at this coming season. I do wonder yeah. if that combination of stuff means we're just going to start getting like Pudge Rodriguez cannon arm dudes again, which cool. But at the same time, like, again, all of this stuff has an impact. It all ripples out in a way that I don't really know that Manfred and company think about or care about as much as I feel like the commissioner of baseball should. That this they stuff, don't care as much about the minor leagues and the A-ball, the Atlantic I mean, League. I mean, like I know saying. Rob Manfred doesn't care about the minor leagues. He, he got yeah. rid of, like, half of them. Like, it, it's obvious to me that he considers the minor leagues the same way that every other Major League Baseball commissioner has considered the minor leagues, which is to say a cheap source of disposable products. Like, mm -hmm. they, he And if does we not screw it up for a year, who cares? Yeah, it doesn't matter. It's illegitimate anyway. Only, like, 5,000 people come to watch these games, and they're in small communities that we don't care about anyway. Yeah. Um... Regardless, I, I just find it strange to a certain degree that stuff like this gets rolled. It, it just seems to get rolled through pretty quickly, it feels like, yeah. you know, and that it, it doesn't really seem like all the all the potential. I know that everything is going to, you know, the only way to figure out how something works is to actually try to use it. But it does feel mm -hmm. like when this stuff comes into play and when it comes into use, there are a lot more questions than there are seemingly answers as to how this is all supposed to work. And I think automated balls and strikes is one of those things where there are still a lot of questions. AAA will answer some of them, but I think it's also going to create a whole bunch of new ones that we're not really going to have any idea how to answer either. And most important for me is going to be, how does this actually affect the sport of baseball? How does this affect the game that gets played on the field? I don't, we don't know, and it's going to be... Here's the biggest problem, interesting too, John, to find right? out, I guess. So for 18 years, kids are just going to play without this, right? Like, you're going to learn to pitch with... Because mm -hmm. there's no robo-umps in Little League. There's no, no and there, and there never There never will be. Like, that's right. not a thing that Little League in particular... Or even I travel mean, ball. High school ball. I do think like, the idea is kind of funny <laughs> that, like, just get it for, get it for like, Little League and, and, like, high school baseball so that instead of an umpire getting death threats screamed at them from the overzealous, like, parents in the crowd, mm -hmm. they can just, like, go hit a robot with a stick. That would at least yeah. just be funnier. You also, know? I mean, that's this is funny that this is a part of this, but like for me, I mean, I go to a lot of games anyway. I'm back in Atlanta, go, went to a lot of Braves games, and now here in Knoxville, going to a lot of Tennessee baseball games where it's like part of the appeal, uh, part of the fun is just <laughs> you not being the person because I'm not that guy, but having those guys at these games who are like just screaming at no, these the, um, those dudes that's, are so bad, they're but like, but it's part of. The I understand it's of part baseball. of you want those guys where you're like that's someone's dad. Well, look, it's who's it's just like screaming. At it's like this people have been saying the whole um, uh, Greg Berhalter, Claudia Reyna thing over his son. Like the mm. fact that that this like nasty toxic drama has emerged because of like essentially a, a parent being mad that their kid didn't yeah. play enough is the most American soccer and like parent kid sport culture thing imaginable. So yes, mm -hmm. I understand it's like part of it. Just it, it is just kind of a bummer though. I feel like it's such a bummer for those umpires to have to deal with those jackasses and be like, what some do you of them want? like it though. I'm like if you talk to them, no some money. of them want that. They want the smoke. It kind of like gets them energized. <laughs> so I think some get energized like, from getting. It's like, that, it's like that story about Pete Weber, the "Who do you think you are?" I yeah. am, and the fact mm -hmm. that it was directed at a 13 year old in the crowd who had pissed him off. Mm -hmm. It's like I get that. Some people just need that. They they need that just fire behind yeah. their head Matt that's basically Max Scherzer I, I imagine or yeah you think this is bad all right here watch the strike zone now you you're upset now like here I, we go. I am so excited I I don't I don't know if it's gonna happen before he retires but if it I want it I almost want it to happen before he retires because I want to see Max Scherzer deal with a robot strike zone mm -hmm. 
I want to see his reaction to that because he... I, I want to see someone lose it at a machine, essentially. Like, he... Mm-hmm. But, like, again, I... I mean, if I were if I were the commissioner of baseball personally, this would not this would not be a priority for me. But I I would again, my priority would be let's just get more accountability for the actual umpires themselves. Mm-hmm. Let's promote good umpires and get rid of the bad umpires as much as we can, as much as you know we can bargain with the union. And I understand that the umpires union is essentially a police union. Like there's fundamentally no difference between the two of them. Like they represent a group of people who will not who do not want their authority challenged and who do not want to give up. The, the status they have achieved and believe that they have earned within the game. You know, the ability that they have to, I imagine, keep MLB from getting rid of guys like Angel Hernandez or CB Buckner is probably substantial. But at the same time, it doesn't... At the very least, the process by which this stuff happens feels like it could be more transparent, you know? Yeah. Or that there could be some level of public accountability. Maybe it's something like... I mean, I don't know how useful it is, but like the NBA last two minutes thing where the refs go through and be like, all right, we missed that, we missed that, we missed that, we missed that. And like, I I know on the one hand, it's like, well, it doesn't really feel great to hear a ref admit, yeah, I just straight up missed that call. But I think yeah. it should also probably help on the one hand, again, with the accountability and the transparency and the idea like, and also with the idea like, look, these guys are human just like you. You try doing this. It's not easy. Like, you know, that's, if is that something that we need to get rid of? with the automated strikes? I don't know, but I also, I guess there's also the fact that umpires are still going to be a part of the game with the automated strike zone anyway. Mm. Um, We'll just have to see, but I I do find it just the pace by which MLB does this stuff and the fervor that they have for it is, is just kind of strange sometimes, or at least notable. Speaking of strange, uh, the Dodgers are currently over the tax uh, because they traded for Miguel Rojas uh, this last week, John. Um, They're going to have to do something else to get back under and they still have time to do so. Um, I don't know. Like, what what do you make of Ross? Do you think they're done? Do you think they ship somebody else out? Like, how does this work now? I, dude, staring at the Dodgers roster right now is like trying to do an algebra problem. It it, mm-hmm. it just like makes my head hurt. It reminds me of being in like in like high school math and just being like, man, this is not going well for me in my brain. Like, yeah, trying to organize how that infield works now, <laughs> where it feels like. Every person has to play at least two positions, and sometimes it feels like... I'm not sure if Chris Taylor has to play second and left at the same time, but Mm. I'm starting... like Based on the way the roster looks, I'm kind of wondering if that's what the Dodgers are thinking, that he will just kind of run between the two between every pitch or something, depending on what they want to do. Yeah. But, no, I... I, The Rojas trade, I, I... I get for the Dodgers in the sense that if they really are committed to Gavin Lux as being a shortstop and given the fact certainly that they feels both, that way it definitely feels that way given that they let trey turner walk and seem to have no interest in anybody else to to do that job then i think it makes sense given how little lux has played at shortstop and that defensively that you know he he has graded out well at second base and i think most people agree or at least the consensus is shortstop defensively he's probably something closer to average i think rojas is there in case lux one turns out to be significantly below average defensively and they just he is not a tenable starter there because if nothing else you can stick Rojas at shortstop for 140 plus games a season and feel pretty good that defensively everything will go smoothly he's a very good defensive shortstop he has at least that going for him he's also very cheap although as you know it takes him over the tax which that's a whole issue but at least for how he fits on the roster I think he makes the most sense as uh the short side of a platoon with Lux 
and essentially the break-in case of glass, or not break-in case of glass, but the veteran backup insurance that I imagine Dave Roberts probably wanted to go along with, yeah, I'll put Gavin Lux at shortstop, but you need to give me someone who can actually <laughs> play shortstop. Mm-hmm. What confuses me a little is that in order to get Rojas, the Dodgers gave up Jacob Amaya, whose profile is basically Miguel Rojas, but younger and with a better offensive ceiling. I, I, I guess maybe, again, if you're Dave Roberts, you don't want the backup to your like 26-year-old uh, non-full-time shortstop to be a 24-year-old guy who was who was ba- below league average offensively in AAA. Like, again, Rojas makes sense in that capacity, but so would so would have signing Elvis Andrews. You know, why? I I guess I don't particularly understand what about Rojas is the most appealing beyond, again, he's relatively cheap, but so is Elvis. Anyway, I think what, what happened with the Dodgers more generally, though, is a, a few things. I think, one, the Trevor Bauer suspension being um, reduced and effectively ended and thus his salary going back onto the luxury tax calculation for 2023, mm-hmm. I don't think they were, I think they were, I think they thought that was a possibility. Mm-hmm. I don't know that they were actively planning for it or that they were actively expecting it. I think hmm. that caught them to surprise by a degree because prior, I mean, I think you could see that they had potentially built in the space because Bauer effectively took them from under the threshold to basically right at it slash slightly over. They had very clearly, I think, tried to leave some space in there. But I think at the same time, they figured they would have had more time to try to figure out what to do with him to to get rid of that financial burden in another sense, perhaps. Maybe try to work out a trade, some kind of... I don't, I don't know. But with that in mind, I, the Rojas thing, like you said, is just confusing from a luxury tax perspective because it really does seem like the entire point of this offseason for the Dodgers was... Reese get back under the luxury tax threshold, reset the penalties so that next offseason when Otani becomes a free agent, we can, I mean, yes, we're going to go back over the the luxury tax threshold, but it'll be for Shohei Otani, someone we like more than, and and I guess the other part of this is, you know, of this free agent class this offseason, you know, who were the Dodgers going to give that big money deal to, you know? Signing Aaron Judge would have meant moving Mookie, Mookie Betts to second base. I think you could prop you could probably make an argument that well you don't have Walker Bueller for a season so go sign Justin Verlander if you can. I don't know maybe Verlander didn't want to go there you know or maybe they just felt like they'd rat they like their pitching options better than uh, than than what was out there. And in terms of the other position players available, if they you know if they didn't want to bring Turner back, I don't know that it would have made sense to go after any of the other shortstops except potentially Correa and. As we've seen with Correa, that just would have turned into its own silly mess anyway. And the rest of the free agent market was pretty thin, with the exception of, like, Wilson Contreras and Jose Abreu, and the Dodgers don't need help at catcher at first base, you know? I think there are. I think they, there probably could have been maybe a little more activity when it came to the outfield. Again, like, Chris Taylor and Josh Al- or James Altman and Trace Thompson are playing very large roles in those depth charts, and I don't really understand why that's the case. I wonder if a lot of this has been L.A. just kind of waiting for, uh, for example, Pittsburgh to lower its asking price on Brian Reynolds. Hmm. Uh, I do wonder. No, if, st- hands off. That's Braves, 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 and, and that's the thing. I do wonder if a lot of these teams that kind of sat out the outfield free agent market or at least didn't find anything to their liking have now just been wondering and waiting like, OK, well, when are the Pirates going to crack on Reynolds, you know? Mm. Or when is when is a team like uh, St. Louis, for example, are they really going to hang on to all of Lars Newbar and Tyler O'Neill and Dylan Carlson and, you know, and, and Juan Yepes and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Like, 
you know, they there are probably some teams trying to see like what other teams are going to do if they have roster crunches elsewhere. And I wouldn't be surprised if the Dodgers are doing that. And to a certain degree, they did that with Miami. You know, Miami didn't really mm-hmm. have room for Miguel Rojas this year. So well, figured, you have okay, to start we'll just, Joey Wendell at shortstop. What else are you You have to. And I, I think Miami's obviously going to do more, but Miami made it pretty clear that Miguel Rojas was not a part of its future. And, and essentially, that's LA buying him for a prospect. Mm-hmm. Again, I don't know that I wouldn't have just rather taken Elvis Andrews, especially if they're both going to cost roughly the same and take you back over the tax anyway. But we'll see. I, I think ultimately... What do you think is their starting at opening day outfield? I mean, I could count on Mookie Betts in right field. Um, yeah. I think it's going to depend... Is Jason Hayward going to get an opening day start in center? I mean, that's the thing. Like the, I, I think what the Dodgers have done for themselves for this season is... I think they're still going to be good because it's, I, I you know, this team still has a, a really good top half of the lineup. It still has yeah. a really good starting rotation. It still has a good bullpen. Like, it, guys the like top Max, end talent is still just... It's still incredibly good. Yes. And guys like Chris Taylor and Max Muncy, for as much as they are not perfect and they are not, like, ideal for the roles necessarily they have, are still good ball players. Yeah. And I, I think part of what makes this Dodgers uh, team kind of feel so off is that normally everyone is kind of in their perfect place and yeah. this Dodgers team feels a lot more like kind of str- like scrambling and kind of crazy right like more crazy yeah. Andrew Friedman than it, it, Dodgers it, just, it feels Andrew more raised than Dodgers yes. I think and raised and not in not raised in a good way no but I, I think the other thing about the Dodgers is there's there's a feeling I think of guys like uh or guys down in their the prospects in their system getting a kind of newer wave of talent so I think what you and those guys potentially playing a role next season. So I think what you could see with the Dodgers is I don't think we're going to see them being that same kind of like 105 plus win team. I think they're still going to be good. I just think the error bars are going to be bigger in terms of where they ultimately end up in terms of wins. I think this it's far more likely you could see a Dodgers team that dips maybe even down into like the low to mid 90s and wins if stuff stuff doesn't come together but if it does it's a team that should be around the 100 win territory anyway just probably not with the same kind of high-end capacity the previous Dodgers teams did barring obviously a trade between now and well I guess the end of the season I would also just do the middle finger and sign jerks and profar to add to this uh, Padres Dodgers, yeah, just, I also I like the idea of signing Profar because I like the idea of the Dodgers building a roster where everyone can play four different positions. Yeah, just every, the whole team is just constantly switching positions during innings. I am amazed the Rays have never done that. Like, why are the Padres not signing Profar? They're starting left fielder. Baseball started today is like what Matt Carpenter. It's weird how San Diego is both like in a position where it's like they have all this incredible talent, but then it mm. really has this feel of, yo, this better work this year. And it's not even guaranteed. It's going to work this year. Yeah. Um, I know. Cause you, I know we wanted to talk about, uh, I, am I, am I stepping on your Padre segue now? Was that what you wanted no, to talk no, about? No, that year? was just something I was thinking about with Profar just sitting oh, okay. out there where I'm like, let's just, let's, let's, we, we can, this is a natural seamless transition, John. We can go Padres here. Yes. Cause I was, this is something when I was looking at the Padres roster, when we, when you were, um, when you brought up whether or not they should go after Otani next season, mm. which, um, I mean, let, let me just get it right. Let me just say it. Obviously, yes, you should go after Otani, <laughs> but the Padres' problem is going to be twofold. One is that they are going to have to choose between Otani and Juan Soto, or, or not Otani and Juan Soto, between Otani, essentially, and Manny Machado, and or potentially the ability to give Juan Soto an extension the year in the twenty twenty anytime between now and the end of 2024 when he becomes a free agent. Mm-hmm. The other issue is that when you look at the Padres roster, just in terms of what they are doing financially, oh my 
God, <laughs> they have some issues that they're going to run into with next year's team. Mm-hmm. Here, here is everyone who is set to be a free agent after the 2023 season in San Diego. Mm-hmm. Manny Machado, if he opts out of the last five years of his contract, which I think he would be insane not to do. Mm-hmm. You Darvish, Blake Snell, uh, Drew Pomeranz, Josh Hader. Just th- those five guys alone are all stepping away. Plus, you're going to have Juan Soto, who made tw- who's made twenty three million, or who's going to make twenty three million dollars this year. His he is going to the last year of arbitration. If they don't agree to a long term deal with him before, then he's going to cost at least thirty to thirty five million dollars for one single year of play, as is deserved. Mm-hmm. Like this team already had, and this team, and even with those guys leaving, this team already has a projected payroll somewhere in the neighborhood of like hundred and fifty million dollars for next year, just in guaranteed money. Hmm. You know, they're going to spend 240 to $250 million this year just on this team. So one way of looking at it is $100 million in salary is going to come off the books. The other way of looking at it is that was $100 million in salary you were paying to Manny Machado, you Darvish, Blake Snell, and Josh Hader. Four guys that are not particularly easily replaceable, particularly given how San Diego has ransacked its farm system in the last few years to make all of this happen. Which this again, is positive. These are positive. positive yes. These things. are these are yes. none of this is to be construed as a critique of the Padres. Yeah. Like things have not worked out perfectly for them, but that's baseball. Things don't work out perfectly for anybody. Every team yeah. has to deal with issues. And while I don't necessarily think AJ Preller is the straightest shooter when it comes to being a tradesman, I do admire his absolute bona fide lunacy chaos and what he does. Like Padres going for it is a good thing. This is just to note that this is a very risky, or not very risky necessarily, but this is a big gamble they have taken where they are already going to have to start paying the piper in a sense mm-hmm. this next offseason because they're going to have to start making those choices of if we want to go after Otani, that means all four of those guys that are walking that are going to be presumably huge contributors to this 2023 Padres team, none of them are coming back. And yeah. that may have been the plan already given that uh, Darvish... Darvish and Machado are both above 30. Snell is getting there, and Hayter is, is a closer. But that also means, okay, we add Otani. What else can we really do? Because this payroll is already $150 million. And does that also impact our ability to keep the guy we traded essentially our entire farm system for in Juan Soto? You know, yeah. these, are, these are very difficult choices the Padres are going to have to make over the next few years. So... I mean, I think they obviously will go after Otani because, as Preller proved with the with the Bogarts judge and um, who else were they trying to go after? Trey Turner contract yeah. offers. He just is happy to spend. Uh, he's happy to spend other people's money if he thinks he can put together the best team possible with it. So I have no doubt that the Padres will be involved in Otani. I also have no doubt that they will be probably one of the finalists for him because of the combination of location and how good they are. But. It's gonna, that's going to be a really tough decision for, for San Diego as to what it wants to do going forward and how it wants to manage the possibility of an Otani future if that cuts out the possibility of a Soto future to say nothing of what happens with, again, Machado and Darvish and Snell and Hayter and everybody else in that on that team that's about to start getting more expensive or that's going to hit free agency soon. Yeah, I also just, they have this, they, this not wild card, I guess, just golden ticket in their back pocket, which is the Fernando Tatis situation where it's I like I am amazed that I went through that entire thing without mentioning Fernando Tatis Jr. because mm. it, it somehow shouldn't be possible but on the other hand yeah because that's another guy they owe a staggering amount of money yeah. to going forward him but, and Bogarts I think will be making a collective like 50 million dollars for the next 10 years in San Diego and a lot of it's hard to forecast with them because I think how they operate with Machado and guys like that next winter is just how does this season go 
do they win? Do they get to the World Series and lose? Do they flame out and get uh, beaten in the wild card round? Like it really just, I think a lot of what happens with San Diego, we can't really <laughs> forecast until the next postseason because I think so much there is so much yeah, pressure. This, I think yeah, this team is built for two things: to win the division and then to win the World Series. And so, yeah. if you if you want to assign a a corollary of a season is successful only if a team or this season would be a success of the Padres only if they win the World Series. Yeah, I think that's, and I think, I mean, I don't necessarily know if that's the case, but yeah, I think for me, it's if this team does not win the World Series this year, the path to do so is going to become much harder from 2024 going forward because Mm -hmm. of the fact that this roster is going to have to change significantly at the very least in the fact that presumably, again, none of Machado, Darvish, Snell, or Hayter are going to be coming back to this team past yeah. 2023 and the Padres will obviously do something to replace them I mean they've done it this offseason right like how many guys will Myers and company like if you go yeah. up it from last year's roster to now there's a bunch of turnover quietly mm-hmm. in San Diego but the thing is I think a lot of the turnover in San Diego so far has been kind of getting rid of the pieces that haven't worked that mm-hmm. upcoming quartet I think is one of the first times in this Preller era that we've really seen they're going to lose guys who matter yeah. And who really have an impact on how things work here. Machado was a fantastic signing for San Diego, even if they didn't win the even if they don't win the World Series. He started all this in a way. He made this all happen, I think. Yeah. So for me, I think, yeah, the, I think this Padres team is built to try to win the World Series, obviously. I think it would be very disappointing for them if they did not. And I think it will also get much harder for them to win one, at least in the next. We'll see. But like, if nothing else. They can win the, it this year. They could. I think they very well could. I think they'll be one of the favorites. I think they probably should be favored to win the division at this point because, again, that Dodgers yeah. team has a lot more like volatility than Dodgers teams of recent years. You know, you cannot just pencil them in for 103 plus wins and, and then kind of go, all right, let's go on with the rest of it. The NL um, postseason is going to be a bloodbath, John. Like, it's going to be Braves, so much fun. Mets, Cardinals, Padres, like? and Dodgers. Is this what it's like being an NBA fan where you just kind of spend the regular season waiting for the postseason? Yeah. Okay, that's kind of a bummer. I mean, there there are many things I like about the regular season that I look forward to. But yes, but postseason think, baseball is different too. Postseason baseball the, is even better than it's NBA. Just thinking postseason. Of, it's thinking about all these really good teams that are built to do exactly one thing, and that's mm-hmm. to win a championship. Actually, get to that point. That's just fun. Because like these, a lot of these teams are built to be regular season dominant too. Like the Padres yeah. are going to win if everyone stays healthy and all and things go right. The Padres will win ninety five plus games. Like they will yeah. be a very very good team. But I, it's just, again, yeah, it, it's wanting to see, you know, how is that going to shake out between the Mets, the Braves, the Phillies, the Padres, the Dodgers, the Cardinals, uh, the Cardinals. Yeah, sure. The Cardinals. Um, <laughs> hey, they I, might I, be trading for Pablo Lopez this week. I mean, sure. I, why not? I think that would be a good move for them. I think if you're the Cardinals, you can never have enough pitch. I, that feels like the most Midwestern maxim of baseball. You can never have enough pitching. Mm-hmm. Because that is the way the, the Cardinals have operated since, I think, every year I've been alive. That's been the mm-hmm. case. And I see no reason why that would stop. Because if it does stop, then the ghost of... Uh, They're like the Dave Ramsey of Major League <laughs> Baseball. No, I was going to say, the ghost of Red Show and Dice will come out and just mm-hmm. been like, like leave, like leave blood, like just emit blood-curdling screams while wandering around the outfield or something like yeah. whitey herzog will come back to life and like strangle like john mazeliak if if the cardinals do not have are not pitching forward going forward uh is whitey herzog whitey herzog's dead right yeah i didn't just right? i didn't he just has to be. okay yeah. what i feel like he has to yeah no. that that feels there's no way there's no way right 
he lived oh 91 years. Yeah, I was going to say, I when I saw Hold 90... On, he's alive. No, he is alive. <laughs> How is... I thought Whitey Herzog died like 25 years ago. He killed Whitey. Oh, no. If he... Oh, my. If he dies tomorrow, I'm going to be so fast. <laughs> oh, no. I hope I didn't just kill Whitey Herzog. Oh, well, either way, the currently still alive Whitey Herzog would have some very cross words for the Cardinals if they did not go pitching forward. Oh, my God. Oh, boy. And I got to make sure Red Schoendies is, all, is dead, too. Or, no, okay, his photo's black and white. I think I feel pretty good about that one. If your photo's in black and white on Google, you're not still alive. Incredible. Oh, okay, but well, he only died, like, four years ago, so... <laughs> what is it about being on the Cardinals that apparently makes you immortal? Everyone associated with that franchise apparently lives forever. <laughs> When you get the best fans in baseball, you just get a little bit. Of, they give you a little bit of their. Do you know how insane it is to have been an MLB manager in like the seventies or the eighties and not be dead? Those guys smoked like five packs a day. They ate nothing but cheeseburgers for seven months straight. They drank all night. None of them ever exercised. It's the Keith Richard situation where you're like, I don't understand how this man is on this planet for another year. Some yeah, people like, are just the, built for it. I feel like the life expectancy for 80s managers should have been similar to, like, 60s rock musicians, yeah. where it's like, that lifestyle will kill you in, like, 10 years. And yet here's Whitey in 91. The fact that Jim Leland is still alive, right? Yes. Yeah. <laughs> the fact that Jim, Jim Leland, Leland is, is alive. still alive yes. is a miracle. That dude has been ripping Marlboros for, like, five decades. Like, he eats decades. them for breakfast. Like, that man has been, he, like, crunches them up a little <laughs> bit, and then he puts a little at the ass. They're like, do you want any room for creamer? And he's like, no, room for ash. No, just room it. for ash. Mm-hmm. Okay, here's the here's the one that I, I had to look this up because I knew it was... Jack McKeon is still alive. Yeah. Papa Jack still being alive is... That's unreal, man. Again, apparently <laughs> if you were... Forget it. If you were a manager in the 80s, apparently you became immortal. Yeah. Like, that, that's a... How are those four guys still alive? Smoke up, guys. Or not... Or Show and Dice is dead, but how are those three guys still alive? That, yeah, that's the lesson. Smoke. <laughs> <laughs> Light them up. Apologies to future sponsors uh, from the Medical uh, Association. Yeah, but... I'm sorry to the American Lung Association, <laughs> your newest sponsor. But Jim Leland is here to say, kids, light them up and light them up often, and you'll live to be however old Jim Leland is, which is, I think, somewhere between 85 and 200. 78. Oh, my God. He just, he's like 78 for a Jim, long Wow, time. Jim Leland is an age where if he died, people would go, oh, he wasn't that old. No. But what is Jack McKeon? He's got to be pushing Jack 90. McKeon's 92. Like, Jack okay. McKeon is at an age where he, when he dies, people are going to go, he was still alive? Yeah. Shout out to Jack McKeon. Yeah, what shout is out Pinella to Papa now? Jack, man. Shout out to Trader Jack. Lou is 79. Good yeah, I mean, 79. Lou Pinella is a hard 79, though. Yeah. Like, all that rage has definitely <laughs> aged him an extra five to eight years. Joe Torre, 82. Joe Torre looks every inch 82. I like how this has now just turned into, <laughs> into me just bad-mouthing senior citizens. And Hall of Famers. Well, Lou, Lou isn't a Hall of Famer. I no, I can't, I can't stop. I'm just I'm, I'm dumping all over the guys. Wait, Lou's a, is he not a Hall of Famer? Do we not think no, so? No, Lou Pinnell's not a Hall of Famer. He's been on the committee ballots a well, few times. I'm saying, like, for us, is he, can we say he's like, I mean, he's a great manager all time. Yeah, he had a 500 winning percentage. Is it only 500? 517, to be exact. Dang. Yeah, Lou, Lou was fine, but Lou was nothing special. He you just, know what it is? He it's just a name. 
he you occupied know a special Lou Pinella is a cool name well it's also because he occupied a special place in our heart as the irascible dude who would like scream at umpires and yeah. throw bases and stuff that, that stuff will always get you far at least when it comes to positive press true also he was willing to give quotes which always also helps also also good um more of a head scratcher john taylor the orioles or marlins off season for you i think they're both weird but i i understand the orioles one less even though i hmm. understand why they are not doing what they're doing and i think it's similar because for the marlins i i figured this was going to be the case because the marlins are cheap yeah and we have yet to see any indication that that's changed or changing like i think to a certain degree you could, if you looked at it from a certain angle, the Avisel Garcia and Jorge Soler signings were like, oh, okay, well, they're they're at least doing something. You know, they're trying. They're giving some money on It's like, no, those are the contracts cheap teams hand out, mm. you know, because they don't cost as much in their short term. And if they don't work, eh, okay. But at the same time, I think you can also see that because those two deals in particular didn't work, you could almost predict that Miami was going to go, eh, I don't know that we really want to spend that much more this offseason season. We've already but got if you're these Kim two. Ang, what are you doing? This is it. Like, if you don't win, you're you're out the door. I mean, ostensibly, I would imagine, but like, and, and that's not to say, like, I liked some of the things Miami has done this offseason. I like Johnny Cueto. I think he's exactly the kind yeah. of guy you add to that rotation. And I think I just love the idea, too, of him pitching in Miami on a regular basis. I need to see him pitch at least one game while wearing like a, a big, loud buttoned shirt. Um, he should be allowed and, to pitch with on a, a horse Panama for hat. one game, too, by the yes, way. Yes, they should just do Johnny. Every day he starts should just be some different theme of Johnny Cueto Day. I like that. Uh, I like signing Gene Segura, although I don't love him playing third base. I Yeah, what's know, the I, infield? Like, who's starting where? Well, ja- I mean, Jazz Chisholm, if he's healthy, is a second baseman. Uh, Wendell's at third, and then you have Segura. Or Wendell's at short, Segura's at third, Ooh. and then you have uh, Garrett Cooper, I would guess, at first base. <sighs> I mean, I like, I like, I still like. For as much as I don't like the Rojas trade for Miami, in that it kind of messes their infield up a little, I do like. You know, I, I think you know if a team's going to offer you a top fifteen prospect within its system, who essentially profiles as the guy you just traded, but younger and somehow even cheaper, and also probably a better hitter, I think you should do that trade ten times out of ten. Like that, that deal made sense to me in a long, but like, from a long term view. It's just everything in Miami just seems to be done with a view of maybe in two or three years this will work out, but if it doesn't, well, maybe two or three years after that. Like, th- there is no there is no urgency to do anything in the present. Like, look at the NL East, man. Like, the Braves and Mets are going to gobble up wins in this division, and the Phillies broke through last year. Like, where do you think the wins are coming if you don't make just gigantic swings this but offseason? But that's the thing. That, that's why it didn't surprise me what Miami didn't do, even though it doesn't really make sense given their context, because yes. they just don't have the ownership that wants to spend. Again, yeah. Bruce Sherman did not have enough money to buy this team. That ownership yeah. group took on a whole ton of debt to do this. They are leveraged to the eyeballs, which is something that MLB really should not have allowed, but given how desperate they were to get rid of Jeffrey Loria and happy about the idea of J- Derek Jeter being the face of a franchise, or another one at least, I'm sure that they kind of just made that all go away. Now it has turned out to be not so good because that ownership group very clearly does not want to spend the amount of money necessary to make that team better. Something Jared Jeter recently learned and was like, all right, I'm out. <laughs> and I, again, that's what I've said. I my fully believe Jeter left because the ownership group said, we're not going to spend the way you think we should spend. Because yeah. I'm sure Jeter was telling them, why are we not signing big free agents? Why mm. are we not making trades for these guys? How do you think this roster is going to get better if all you rely on is a farm system? Yeah, that truly that's all that Miami is doing is just. It's essentially the equivalent of rolling dice and just hoping you hit, like, whatever a good dice. I've never played craps, does it show? I've never either. 
So whatever a good roll in craps is, it just feels like that's what Miami's doing and just hoping that the dice come up that way. And if they don't, yeah. well, it's not like... And they're also only placing like $10 bets. Mm. You know, they're not even going that hard in. But their strategy is super limited anyway. Yeah. No, Miami's just a bad gambler, apparently. Um, yeah. For the Orioles, it's more surprising, I think, because the proof of concept is now there that what they are doing is working and can mm. work and should work. And I think that's the moment when you have to start making that jump into then we... I, I think they are at the point where, to give the most recent example, like the 2015 Cubs were, hmm. or, the 20, or the 2014 Astros, where you were finally seeing, oh, hey, this is actually starting to get... They're actually starting to figure some stuff out here. This is going to be good now. Hmm. And, which is not to say that the Orioles will necessarily turn into that, but... I do find it a little weird that with what they saw last year where they were like, oh, this seems actually better than we expected, huh? That that wasn't used as a jumping off point to, well, then let's go ahead and start investing more in it. And instead was, well, we're ahead of schedule, so we're just not going to spend anyway, and we're going to wait to do the spending. Because, and look, I, I don't know with regards to the Orioles offseason, like what they really could have done in terms of their ability to spend with like, Aaron Judge wasn't going to go to the Orioles. Carlos mm-hmm. Rodon was probably not going to go to the Orioles. Justin Verlander was probably not going to go to the Orioles. Trey Turner, like, you know, they, I don't necessarily know that there were too many guys who made sense for them given what the, you know, given how the market shook out. But I also do find it weird that there wasn't more of an attempt to add pitching, for example. Yeah. You know, that they weren't a team that was really in on, like, Nathan Yavaldi or Andrew Haney or, you know, or maybe even a step above Haney or a guy, you know, I think, it, you know, Jamison Tyon ending up on the Cubs, why not the Orioles? And I don't even think yeah. Jamison Tyon is that great shakes, but I think he's he is something kind of dependable and relatively durable that the Orioles rotation, even with how much uh, how much better it performed than I think people expected last year, still looks like a rotation where you're like, I really would like one more good arm here. Mm-hmm. You know, I like obviously Rodon would have been perfect for that team. Um I I just get the sense that he really wanted to go to New York ultimately at the end of the day. But I, I don't know. It, it also, it, it just doesn't make you feel great about what the Orioles might be planning or thinking mm. that they saw this offseason and didn't immediately sort of like jump in and be like, all right, let's start making these moves. Let's start bringing these guys in. And mm. instead we're like, oh, well, I guess we'll wait till next year and see how this year goes. And because I think that's the other thing. I think if this Orioles team underperforms relative to expectations, I think if we see an Orioles team that finishes uh, last in the division, for example, or that fails to go to go 500 or doesn't contend for the playoffs i do wonder if the if the message after that is going to be see they weren't ready yet yeah we still they still need time that's why we didn't spend but i worry that that just becomes a, like in miami a perpetually moving target right you know where it's like it just justifies never spending because you're always like well we don't know if they're ready it's like yeah because you need to add more to get them to a better place like right this baltimore team as it stands now looks pretty good but it's probably not going to be uh, a team that wins more than like somewhere in the mid eighties where it currently stands. I think it still needs more. And but they could have done it. Like they could have gotten closer. It, it could've, they could have gotten closer. I, I agree. I think at the very least they should have been more. I think they should have been in on one of those four shortstops. I think that yeah. would have made a lot of sense for them. Why aren't they trading I, for Pablo Lopez or something like that? They have a farm system that I think has finally started to bear some fruit. And now is yeah. the time I think when you have to start figuring out, okay, which of these guys are going to take the next step and which of these guys can we move for help that we can use and Lopez is a great is a great example because he's not just help right now. He's yeah. help long term. He's not expensive. He's not an older guy. You know, this is this wouldn't be the equivalent of, of trading for like uh, Justin Verlander or something. Yeah. This would just be getting a guy who helps your rotation and who'll probably help it 
for a few years down the road if all you do is give him a pretty good sized mid uh, mid career contract extension. You know, can I tell you what I'd do for them if I was What's Baltimore? That? I signed well, Grinky. They're dilly dallying around in Kansas City. East. Oh my goodness, no. No, 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 no. I don't want him as a main starter. I want him as emergency number six. But if there is a teacher and a guy, when you read about, remember that article on Grinky, like all of his teammates and like how beloved he was by just the starters um, in Texas and Houston. And I, I think there is value in guys like that. I mean, the Braves have that a little bit with Charlie Morton. Um, I think you, I know, it's, a, it's, a, it's a veteran the, mentor thing. I, yeah. I just wonder, given that we've heard nothing or not, I shouldn't say nothing about Grinky. I know Ken Rosenthal had a, a notebook piece recently that yeah. mentioned Grinky. I, I didn't read it, but, um, I, I do wonder if Grinky is looking to retire though. If he's just yeah. kind of, if he's just kind of waiting to see how he feels before spring training starts and whether or not the drive is still there and whether or not he still wants to put his body through that, uh, whether or not he still wants to, you know, put his body through a full season, no less. He's going to um, do a bit when he retires, by the way. I mean, I also I wouldn't be surprised if he went to Kansas City with the intention in his mind of I'll play one more season there. I'll see mm. how it feels. And if that ends up being my last season, then at least I had it in Kansas City. At least my career yeah. came full circle, you know, or, or whatever it happens to be. If if that kind of thing matters to Zach Greinke, which the more I think about it, the more I'm not actually sure that would matter to Zach Greinke. But anyway, but I mean, he signed in Kansas City for a reason. You know, yeah. it, it, that team wasn't going anywhere. I think it was very clearly a a sentimental type thing for him as much as he can presumably get sentimental but what's the Ichiro quote in Kansas City oh that it's hotter in Kansas City than two rats fucking in a sock that's it wool sock wool sock that's it yeah Yeah. Ichiro a a fantastic quote when he felt like it not when he felt like it when when we got to hear from him I should say yeah um but yeah I I I understand the Orioles offseason less in that sense that to me it looked like this is the perfect opportunity to start moving toward the contention that you guys have been promising is going like to show up Like the team that we're going to talk about last, John. The team that was like, we have these awesome young arms or young players. We have this awesome young lineup. We have this generational hitter and Vlad Guerrero Jr. We have Bo Bichette here. We're going to yeah. keep trying to win because guess what? It's going to be really hard to beat the Rays uh, yeah, and the Yankees I mean, and, year over year. And that is a team in Toronto that when those young guys started showing up, they were like, okay, then let's yeah. get George Springer. Let's yes. get uh, Kevin Gaussman. Let's Ryu. get now Chris Bassett. Let's. I mean, Rio even Rio even predated that. I think yeah. that was kind of like starting to get to bridge them to that point. You know, um, get Brandon Belt this offseason. which I, I like for them. Matt Chapman only, too, which was a big thing at the time. Matt, Matt Chapman, Chapman was, was a big trade. Like that team is consistently going for it in Toronto in a way that Baltimore. And I think you can argue Baltimore is not at where Toronto. They're close it, though, they're, man. They're, but they and then and, I, and you made the point already. They can get closer. It was not impossible for this Baltimore team to get better. I think the Baltimore teams of the last like four or so seasons before that, when they were truly abysmal, you looked at those rosters and went, well, there would be no point in add. Like you could add every major free agent to this roster, and they probably still only win like eighty-five games. Like it's just terrible all the way down. But once you've gotten to that point of like, oh, where this is actually a, a good, functional, probably core now. Mm. And sure, maybe I can understand the patience of like, oh, hey, Grayson Rodriguez isn't up yet. We don't have a full season out of Adley Rutschman or a full season out of Gunnar Henderson. Let's see what these guys look like before we start making all kinds of expensive long-term commitments to dudes who are much older, unless they had signed Correa, which I still think they really should have gone after Carlos Correa. But I can understand that, but I also think it's a very risk-averse strategy that also so conveniently happens to involve not spending money, which given how the Angelos family seems to be operating right now, definitely seems to be one of their prime directives is uh not spending money which 
for as much as you could say about Peter Angelos, he would spend the money to make the Orioles better. I and I guess that's the thing if you're an Orioles fan right now, like how worried are you about the ownership situation and how this is all playing out? Because I mean, I don't know if you saw or read about the interview that or interview the little exchange that uh, John Angelos had with Dan Connolly of the Baltimore Sun, basically about how to make it all the worse, it happened on Monday at a at, with. Con- or with um, Angelos basically trying to say, look, I'm here to talk about this uh, this Martin Luther King Jr. event. I don't how disrespectful to talk about you know the team ownership situation right now. And it's like, are you even from the area? And like, well, Connolly is from Baltimore for what it's worth. Mm. Like, just pulling the aggrieved. Like, I can't you can't expect me to talk about this stuff. Man, between that and the the latest set of Bob Castellini, like point like putting a shotgun directly against his foot and pulling the trigger multiple times, like. MLB owners are just such a gross, useless group of people. And you're always part. like, well, what if they saw it? It's like, chances are it would be worse than the person who was in the like, charge you, before. Do you realize how annoying and frustrating it is when we talk about teams like the Dodgers and the Padres to have to think about the money? That yeah. having to do actuarial tables is something that actually matters in baseball. And I understand why, because these guys have to be paid for their work. But at the same time, it's like the fact that these teams have these constraints that are essentially self-imposed because the people in charge have just decided I, you're only getting X percent of this, even though potentially only a little bit more might be the difference between this team winning something and this team not winning something, you know, yeah. and which ostensibly would be the only binary that these people would, who own a sports team would care about. Like if I owned a sports team, I, I wanted to win. What what else am I owning it for? You know, I, it's which is all a much bigger thing about the transition of team from a symbol, symbol of civic pride and civic in, and a civic institution with shared cultural values and uh develop and what's it called uh involvement to a financial play thing for the idle rich but mm. that's a whole that's a whole other much rantier podcast that i would recommend you get craig calcaterra on here to talk about i've tried i would like to get craig calcaterra on this his his newsletter's fine uh, go subscribe fun. to it cup of coffee um last thing the rate uh we talked about the a little bit they are sixth in payroll as of right now, it's always funny to go to y'all's Fangraphs uh, roster resource page for certain things where the Mets are just this now insane 2023 projected payroll, 350 million. Their 2026 commitments, 87 million. Yeah, That's just Ma- bonkers. Steve Cohen. Just I, what I, are we doing? I appreciate that the financial criminal Steve Cohen has no attachment to his money because he, he's just the like. And, and again, we talked about it. He's like the the best case scenario for a billionaire owner, which is that they have no trouble spending money. The downside is those guys are all categorically insane. (laughs) You know, like you're you're not not getting a Mark Cuban, you know? No one is getting a billionaire who's also not a flaming embarrassment in at least half a dozen different ways or an actual, like, registered felon, like Steve Cohen, the financial criminal. Or convicted felon, I should say. The Blue Jays also <laughs> signed Brandon Belt. Uh, John Taylor, do they have the best lineup in the AL? I think it's up there. I mean, I, I think the biggest contender for me, or the biggest obstacle standing in their way of claiming that what would be that number one spot would be Houston. Hmm. That Houston lineup remains impeccable from top to bottom. And I think adding Jose Abreu and getting Michael Brantley back should be very, very beneficial. Mm-hmm. Um yeah, I obviously really like what Houston... Also, Houston has the best non-Aaron Judge hitter in the American League, which is who is Jordan Alvarez. Mm-hmm. So I think that's a really tough hill to crest. I think uh, optimally functional, fully healthy Yankees lineup is very, very good, or has the potential at least to be very, very good. 
and that especially goes up if and when Anthony Volpe is ready to join that lineup. Uh, I think his offensive his offensive ceiling is very high, and it, I, I, I've said it before, I feel so much for that kid. The Yankees punted like three off-seasons worth of shortstops. No, there's no Just question he has to be a big player this year. Like, yeah, there's no like question. He, I, I, feel like, I feel like the Yankees kit will be okay if, or should be fine if he doesn't end up contributing this season. But I he think won't be because Yankees will, fans will not let that go. If Volpe is not awesome, that's I not going to go well. I think he would be the difference between that team being good and being great if he shows yeah. up and, and, is, and is the guy he's supposed to be. But regardless, I think those two teams are probably in that conversation. I think it's Houston right now. I think Toronto is right there, though, with the Yankees and with... Boston's lineup for like six weeks out of the year is going to be great. And the rest of the year, it's just going to make me want to tear my hair off. So mm-hmm. we'll go with that. Uh, I think Seattle's, I, I, you know, I, <laughs> Seattle has that thing where every time I want to talk myself into them, uh, particularly as an offense this year, I just stop halfway through. And I remember, wait, they're starting a Jared Kalenic, AJ Pollock platoon in left field. And their DH is probably going to be a lot of like, I was going to say Adam Frazier, but he's not there anymore. Um, it's 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 not great in it, it will it's not be there. DH. Um, that's I mean, it, yeah. I, so I, no, I think Toronto is up there. I think it's probably Houston. Toronto is the one too, if only because if it's not Toronto, you're betting on a healthy Yankees lineup, which is certainly not not a thing. Yeah, uh, you're betting on a really like 2013 style performance from a Boston lineup. You're betting on Cleveland somehow coming up with like a hundred home runs out of nowhere uh or you're betting on seattle and texas being essentially more than the sum of their parts because their parts just don't look very great in a lot of places so i, I think i it's mean dalton Varsha, we haven't even mentioned they traded for him i think well i think he's a big hinge in that lineup because he's a guy who overperformed his peripherals last year and who you know the the contact peripherals at least have not really been a fan of the last couple of years mm. they think he's pretty much close to an average bat as opposed to a, an above average one but yeah, I think... I mean, think about ver- this. Like, you got Vlad, Belt, uh, Whit Merrifield, and Espinal at second. They'll probably split time. Well, I don't. I mean, I don't know how much I expect Belt to play. I mean, because, I mean, for me, in my mind, that lineup is... It's Vlad, it's, Vlad, it's Bichette, it's mm-hmm. Springer, it's Kirk, and it's Chapman. Those are the five guys you feel very good about going into the season. I think you should Kirk- feel good about Varsha. I think you feel okay about Varsho, and I think for the most part you feel okay about Springer. Uh, some combination of Espinal and Merrifield at second base. Yeah, but I, I think I mean there is, as with every lineup, there is certainly there are certainly some spots that I think are weaker than others, and there's certainly potential for things to go wrong. Particularly if guys get hurt, this yeah. team doesn't have a lot of offensive depth I think to work with, and that's going to be a problem. If like, well, I mean for any team losing a player of like Vlad Jr. would be very very bad, but. Yeah, Toronto Toronto can't afford to lose those top five guys really for any extended period of time. And I think the guy you worry about the most in that group is Springer in that regard because he just has not been able to stay healthy the last few years. Have we had a player play every position outside a catcher? Because I think Kevin Biggio has a chance to play at least one game of every Biggio. position. I'm really curious to see what they're going to do with him. because Super utility. Need... Like, whoever needs a day off, Kevin's like, I got you. Like, he's just going around the dugout. I, I suppose, who's like, who's like, tired? I, who's tired? I just he wants wonder, a day off. Like, he has just not shown any ability to hit consistently throughout yeah. throughout the, the major so far. And I wonder if, if that being the case, like, if a super utility role isn't essentially bad for him because he just never gets consistent playing time in yeah. any one place or another. But Strong Johan Camargo vibes for him. Yeah, I, I, but I'd be very curious to see what that's going to turn into for him. 
or be very curious rather to see what the Blue Jays are going to turn him into. Because I think you're right. I think they probably want to do some kind of super utility, but yeah. Um, I think he plays yeah. every single position outside like first this year. I think he gets a start at second, third, short, center, left, and right. I think we yeah. get to every start. Um, John Taylor, what can the good folks check out from you and the team over at Fangraphs.com this week? So a lot of obviously catching up after the holiday weekend, uh, getting in on some of the smaller piece, on some of the smaller moves that have been made recently. Uh, we actually have a piece on Dalton Varsho coming out. There you go. Uh, Wednesday morning. Uh, Dalton Varsho's Secret Superpower, it's called by Ben Clemens, so I'll be interested. You know that's going to gonna be good. That. That's going to be fun. Uh, Jay, Jaffe is, Jay Jaffe is wrapping <laughs> up, as I said last week, his Hall of Fame uh, Jaws profiles. He'll have Mike Napoli out this week. Again, he's doing going through the guys on the ballot who will be one and done, who will be on this ballot, but probably almost certainly no future ones. But he wants to give a tip of the hat to everybody who appears because Jay's a completist like that. Uh, similarly, is still running through our Zips projections. We got the Mariners coming out on Wednesday, so uh, that's actually why when I was thinking about Seattle, I remembered looking at the graph or the the uh, graphic that Dan has that goes with mm-hmm. that. Looking at the positions, going, oh yeah, there are some not great issues with, the, with this team, for, in particular. But so we'll have we're mostly again just running through the the off season series and otherwise checking in on smaller stuff, so smaller stuff around the league, but. Uh, as we get closer, obviously, to the end of January, we'll have our Hall of Fame vote recap roundup. Uh, Jay will do that, and then also some forecasting for the next few Hall of Fame ballots. Uh, we'll have top one, or we'll have a team prospect list coming up by Eric Longenhagen as he s- continues scouting his way through Arizona. Uh, we'll have the rest of Dan Zip series and eventually his 2023 Zips projections for the whole league. And obviously, the big one in about a month's time, close or close enough to it, we will be rolling out the top 100, our big prospecty our big prospect list for 2023. So come on over to Fangraphs, sign up for a membership. It's just $60 a year for ad-free browsing. You get a lot of cool perks. Come join Fangraphs. We're good. There you go. Do that today. John, thank you as always, my friend. I greatly appreciate it. And uh, I'll talk to you next week. Sounds good. All right, hello, and welcome back. Chase Thomas Podcast, taping this on a Tuesday afternoon. Good friend, old friend, Logan Booker, who I met, oh, I mean, I guess we're at a decade ago. Uh, is I that right, it. Logan? I think our class we met each other was back in the fall of 2012, if you can imagine that. So we are over 10 years, man, which which literally seems like two years ago. That's crazy. But it also, but it also feels like 20 at the same time, man. So I can't even, I can't figure it out. No, no. It's good um, to see you there, man. You too. You too. And you're, we have different, like I'm a night owl. You can't even be a night owl with your job, no. right? Like there's no, no chance. I no, I, I'll tell you, I did not even see a single snap last night of uh, Tampa Bay. And uh, I've already forgotten who they played, man. Last Dallas. Night. Oh, Dallas. Thank you. So I'm so out of it right now. No, I, I tried. My goal last night was like, all right, I want to watch kickoff. But then eight <laughs> o'clock rolled around. Jeopardy was over. And I'm like, bro, I'm tired. I'm going to bed. Okay. So I had one of those like wake up in the middle of the night and just like roll over, check the phone and saw the Dallas one. And I was like, well, that's, that's that. So some days are better than others when it comes to staying up late, but that four thirty alarm is no joke, man, in the morning. So does the dog get um, up with you or is he like, it's too early? Does Chipper... No, he's, he stays in bed. Actually, when okay. I get up, he takes my spot. He's like, oh good. I got the, uh, the pillow spot. Then my wife will let him out when she goes to work. So okay. now nah, he has no interest in the, that early stuff, man. You know you get up early for work when the dog doesn't even, he's like, this is not working for me. 
No, nah, but I, I like getting up early. I like being home early. I like having my afternoons off. But just mm. kind of as I get older, the more I realize that unless it's a live sporting event that I'm really engaged in, mm. nothing good happens at night. So just go to bed. That's just that's kind of where I'm at. Man. But there you go. It's good. I enjoy it. Well, um, it brings me no joy uh, to <laughs> reveal why you're why you're back on this very podcast, Logan. It's because yeah, no, I, I know it hurts, man, but we uh, <laughs> we. We do what we got to do, and that's win championships around here, Chase. So, so what, what can you say? Hey, now, some, school, uh, some schools, they pit, they they emphasize <laughs> everything school mentality where it's like, hey, we just want to be in the fold for every sport. Like Exactly. Like we want to be number two in the preseason D1 baseball poll. We want to be in the top five in basketball and number one in defense and Kim Palm. We want to be finishing number six in the AP poll. That's I what know. we want to do in Rocky I Top. Know. But that's not what y'all want to do. Y'all just want to gobble up all the football national titles I mean, and then hibernate for eight months. Georgia not ranked right now, but they are 13 and four under Coach White in basketball. Mm-hmm. And I guess we got a big test tonight against uh, Kentucky, which Tennessee failed that test last week, unfortunately. That, that was mm-hmm. weird. I'm not even trying to talk trash. That was just a bizarre circumstance. I was busy doing something. I was like, mm-hmm. uh, oh, I'm sorry. It was the national championship parade I was at. And then I went and checked the score and I was like, what happened in that game? And I could not believe that Kentucky, after losing to South Carolina went down to Knoxville. I was expecting the Vols to like handle business, but Tennessee's the better team. You'll you'll get it ironed out. That's the beauty of basketball. You can have a loss here, a loss there, and it doesn't completely ruin your season. So who cares? We'll get there. Yeah, I'm not worried. Georgia is gone through a little bit, as you kind of alluded to, like basketball kind of has stunk for a really long time. Uh, baseball wants to be good, but can't get over like the, the regional hump there. Like the, this, uh, this, they get the super regional and just kind of fizzle out. So I guess why not put all your chips into basketball? I mean, football right now. So who knows, but it's, it's been paying off a little bit alive, man. No doubt about it, but there's some decent things happening around the rest of the programs. It's just right now football's King for, for good reason. Well, it's interesting too because you call or your what is your actual role for the baseball team? Is it you? Do you do play by play or you just do like announcements? What do you do? No, just at PA. I'm I'm, I'm in okay. the stadium basically saying now batting, and then like between okay. innings is like all the promotional stuff. So I don't do anything with the radio or anything there. But you're at all these home games. I'm imagining yeah. how do you watch every Georgia baseball game? Uh, on the road, I'm not like religious to like sitting down and watching every inning or anything. But I'll yeah. keep up with it pretty good. But I'm not like on the edge of my seat watching every single baseball game now. Well, the reason I ask is because like something I was I wrote about this where it it's weird and I don't know if you feel this way, but I feel like you would uh, have a you would share a similar mm-hmm. sentiment is that like I've sp- you, I spend so much time with Drew Gilbert and watching Jordan Beck grow, watching Drew Gilbert grow, watching yeah. Tony Vitello build this program, and like I spend so many of my weekends at uh, at Lindsey Nelson and yeah. just baseball is a longer sport. Baseball is a more um, you get more emotionally invested in yeah. baseball because you have so much time with these guys and you watch them get bigger and better over the years. And you have this emotional response. Like it crushed me like the Notre yeah. Dame lost in the <laughs> super regionals. like that crushed me. Like I went immediately went for a run on campus and was like, I, I told my wife, I was like, I cannot be consoled or talked to for like the rest of the day. I don't know if I would feel like that at this point with Tennessee football, because it's so quick, man. Like I told Matt on the podcast the other day where it's like, it's amazing how quickly the college football season comes and goes. Like yeah. it's so quick. You get only six games if you're lucky at home and then it's just gone. Baseball, you're just there and it's all the time. And you spend so much time with these guys that I just, I think I've formed more of an emotional connection 
to baseball. And that's not to say yeah. I'm not emotionally invested in football. It's right, just right. different. I hear you. No, it's it's football is, is just king. I mean, that's just what mm-hmm. I, I find most of my emotions in that. If Georgia loses a game, I'm miserable for, for a while. I mean, it's not mm-hmm. a good week. It's dealing with radio. And look, I love our callers, our people we interact with. But like, it, it's a mood. It really mm-hmm. is like a vibe around Athens and the state of Georgia, or just like Tennessee, too. When a loss happens, people are just very upset. So I, I actually think baseball is one of those get over it super fast. Mm-hmm. If something happens now talking about a season, it can certainly sting. And look, I think we all agree. Tennessee was the best baseball team the entire year last year. So I totally understand that the crushing feeling there is that, Hey, you know, and I, I don't even, did you even watch the world series? Like when it got to that no, point, I, I could yeah. not do it. I, I and Ole Miss won. Ole Miss yeah. barely got into the college yeah. world series. Like they <laughs> should not even been in the regional. Like it was, See, I get that. I wouldn't have watched either because you would have watched knowing it's like, dude, I know my team, if they were on the stage, would be winning right now. You had a bad couple of games against Notre Dame. So that, that stinks. But it's not like college football where the best team like Georgia was the best team yeah. from beginning to end this past year. And they won the national title. Yeah, it's, it's not uh, like that in baseball. Exactly. So I don't know. Let's, for instance, had Ohio State kick the ball through the uprights. If they had won that that peach ball. And they very well could have. You're talking a game of inches when it comes down to that. I would have watched the beginning of the national championship. Mm. I, in all likelihood, I believe this. I can't prove it. But T, uh, Ohio State would have demolished TCU as well. Mm. Uh, I would have watched about a quarter of it and said, I'm out. I'm going to bed. And then that would have haunted me the entire offseason, knowing that all we had to do was stop that field goal. Now, yeah, you can break the game down and come up with 17 different things that could have gone your way and, or one way or the other. But. Yeah, I'm not sure I could have watched it if uh, if if they had made that. So I, I get it, I totally do. But my my emotional investment is like 95% into the Georgia football team. Uh, love the Atlanta Braves. They gave me a ton of joy a couple of years ago, and they're still a really good franchise. But uh, Georgia baseball is one of those things that yeah, they won the World Series back in 1990. It's been a really long time. This generation that's watching them now is honestly kind of used to watching them be good not great get to the postseason and then that's it they'll wind up losing to a team like duke i think a couple of years ago north carolina eliminated them last year so the the emotional investment's just not there and i'll be dead honest and i'm not trying to talk trash about my own program but it's a boring product hmm. uh, it really is i mean i love the coach coach is fantastic i love some of the players but the atmosphere over at foley field is not what i'm seeing over at tennessee in fact the new ops guy there's a brand new uh kid that's taking over georgia baseball in stadium operations mm. that was like second in command at tennessee last ah. year uh his name is harrison I, I can't think of his last name right now but he is trying to make foley field a lot more lively and that's, sort that's of a good get right now and he's a tennessee fan and he'll tell you that first and foremost at alumni but uh he's going to go over there and try to see if he can get foley field to crank up a little bit so i'll be curious to see what it looks like this this spring I mean, it's a party like the Georgia. Yeah. I remember the when Georgia played at Tennessee uh, last year, yeah. um, like one of the cool things about being a grad student was I always got in free for baseball. And mm-hmm. it was one of those right. The line people were getting there at one o'clock in the afternoon yeah. on Friday. Like Georgia wasn't awesome. even like a powerhouse, but they just wanted to see Tennessee, Georgia. It's a party like you. You talk to players and stuff after. And it's like they don't they've never seen anything like it. I was talking to Jose Vasquez, the um, Alabama State uh, baseball manager last week. And he played Tennessee in the in the regionals and mm. Tennessee just buried him. But like he was talking about it. He's like, yeah, Tennessee was the best. But he's like, we've never seen we, you just don't see stuff like that in college baseball yeah. very often. Like yeah. it's a intense, terrifying situation because it's sold out. Like when we say sold out standing room only, um, it's it's something it's just yeah. unlike anything else I've ever experienced in college baseball. And that's that's fun. And that's what I want all around. Like the dude is like that at Mississippi State. 
Um, they have a gigantic park and they they really care um, whether it's Ole Miss, Mississippi State, even Southern Miss has a strong fan yeah. base. Like it can be done in the South. I think we're going to see more of an uptick. I think you're going to yeah. see with NIL more guys not immediately go to the draft. And Georgia, yeah. like you know, has a bunch of in-state talent um, oh, yeah. that I think college baseball is going to continue to get bigger and bigger because oh. it's it's fun. Yeah, definitely. Um, well, Logan, now that you've had a couple weeks to reflect on yeah, the man. national title game, outside of the result, what are you still thinking about with this Georgia run in that game? I think winning a second one – I know like the, this time last year, it was such like shock and awe. Mm. It was like, oh, my God, we actually did it. Like when Keely Ringo intercepted that football in Indianapolis on January 10th, 2022, we all had this like out of body experience, like, holy crap, where we going to we're going to win the national championship. And mm. then it ends in the game. The confetti falls and that weight is off your shoulders. But then I, it was mainly Alabama, and I guess – and look, this should never bother me, and it really doesn't. I'm just bringing it up as sort of a point. Like, the social media world wanted to do everything it possibly could to discredit Georgia from winning that game. And like, oh, well, if the receiver's this and that. I'm sorry, but being healthy at the end of a season is, is a big ingredient of winning a championship. If your mm -hmm. players aren't healthy, I'm sorry for you. I can come up with many examples that Georgia's had where, hey, if we had this player, things would probably probably be different. Uh, but this time around, after spending an entire year as national champions and kind of having that joy, you go into another season. I'm also going to bring Stetson Bennett into this, too, because when he announced that he was coming back, I think that in a weird way kind of negated some of the joy of watching him walk away as a national champion after 21. Hmm. Like, OK, I know your story. Your story is amazing. Let's go ahead and get the Disney movie 10 years from now. All of that. But when he came back and that kind of said, oh, my God, like, OK, great, you're back. We know you're a decent quarterback. But now the chances are extremely high that you're going to end your career with a loss at some point, whether mm -hmm. it's through Tennessee or Florida or a couple of losses. You just kind of get shamed and all the haters out there that don't like Stetson. And there's plenty of Georgia fans that for a long time never warmed up to him. It was like, dude, you took your storybook ending. And again, your chances of winning are, are very little going into the next season, winning it again, and it's just going to kind of tarnish your finish. Um, when you started winning this past season and uh, things around you started happening, one example is when Alabama lost in Knoxville. You're like, oh, mm. wait a second, maybe Alabama's not that great this year. Uh, other things started happening. I'm trying to think of examples of who started like falling from the perch, and you're like, wow, like maybe Georgia is the best team out there. They can actually win this again. So you get into like late season, you're like, whoa, like maybe Stetson will actually find a way to pull this off and win back to back. But the farther you get, the more it's going to hurt if it doesn't mm. happen. Uh, so when he finally won this thing and like now he's officially riding off into the sunset is I think one of the best stories in college football history, uh, being a former walk on now winning, not one, but two national championships, a 15 and 0 season. I think the relief that I'm feeling right now, and just the joy is like even better than last year, even though that 40 year drought finally came to a close. And I think it also solidifies like this era of Georgia football. Of course, fans want 10 more championships in the next 10 years. I mean, that's the way it works. But if another one doesn't come for five years, 10 years, even, which I hope isn't the case, like the fact that there is now a back to back notch on Kirby Smart's era and Stetson Bennett rode off in the sunset, like doing what he did, like it's just. I feel like this is one of those eras that like not only will Georgia fans be talking about for a while, I think other fan bases, other coaches, other media 
will kind of refer back to Georgia and Kirby Smart is uh, solidified for a long time to come. So it, it's kind of a weird feeling where it kind of feels like you're gratis, like you're it's like gratification as opposed to relief. Um, and I think it's even better than the relief feeling last year. So I don't know, just kind of sitting back thinking like, okay, eventually Georgia's going to lose a football game, right? Like whether it's next year or two years from now, and in all likelihood, probably next year. I mean, it's it's going to happen at some point, but is that going to like throw a tarnish on this back-to-back year? No, it's going to stink the day it happens and you're going to go to bed mad and you're going to like deal with a bunch of trolls online and all that. But who cares? I mean, you always have that back-to-back championships in your pocket now, which, I mean, look, I spent 39 years of my life seeing none of them, and all of a sudden I get back-to-back. It's like, I want to say I can die happy just based on that, but, you know, you start getting greedy. I don't think Alabama fans have enjoyed a national championship since, like, 2012. I mean, they've won several of them, but mm. they stopped enjoying them. You know what I'm saying? It becomes so expected that the years they don't, they're just mad as hell. Mm. I don't, I don't want to get to that level, but, like, are we sneak? Are we slipping into that that point? You know what I'm saying? Like, okay, you've won two. When it doesn't happen, is it going to be a bad thing, or is it going to be like, well, that was that was a fun run. Now let's just try again next year. I, you know, it's it's a weird feeling, but I, I do feel like winning back to back for the fan base and everybody we talk to on our radio show, like the feeling of just it's almost like closure right now. But we know that it's like far from over. But we already have that like closure. We were hoping that Stetson would finish with so. It's kind of weird, man. I never thought I'd like be like trying to dissect feelings like this, but it is kind of a weird, weird position to be in. But it's a good one. It is a good one. And I yeah. don't think you're there yet with the Alabama fatigue. No, um, I do think you're on the way. Like, I think yeah. this decade you'll feel it at some point, unless we get just like Kirby leaves for the NFL or something, which I don't think is ever going to happen. No, then I, that's I, what's I, going to happen. Just you're going to but you have some time. Don't don't rush your life, folks. Yeah. Just enjoy this for now. And I, I can tell you, knowing the family, I, I know there's always going to be rumors. I think Cardinals, Arizona Cardinals fans were kind of hoping the last couple of weeks, like, hey, can we go get Kirby Smart over here? And mm. not happening. Absolutely 100% not happening. You know, five, five, six, seven years from now, if he wants to reassess his like time management and all that, maybe. But as of right now, this family is rolling. The Smarts currently just bought a brand new house, hmm. doing this like multi-million dollar renovation on it. Like they're they're solidified. They're here. Yeah, if as he leaves, it's he's retiring. Are, he's exactly. taking a break. And as long as his kids are in this area, which I think his youngest might be 10 or 11 right now, mm. uh, Kirby's going to be the coach at Georgia. I, I can tell you that. And those Alabama fans that have this like hope and prayer that, oh, when, when Saban retires, we'll bring back Kirby. Yeah, you can squash those dreams, too. That's not happening. No, I've I've said for forever that the man who replaces Kirby is Deion Sanders. Like I have, all right, really? excuse me, not Kirby, uh, Saban <laughs> yeah. is. I think he is. I think he's been in line for a long time. I don't think there are many people who you have to have an unbelievable ego to replace Nick Saban, like the greatest oh, college yeah. football coach at all time at one of the most premier universities. There's only a handful of folks. Like I don't even think Dabo wants to walk down that aisle of like being the one to replace the goat. Dion would embrace it. Yeah, like that's where I was. I was with Dabo for a while, uh, up until like a year ago or so. I think when mm. he like refused to do the transfer portal, and he said a lot of wonky things here and there the last like year. He just, I think we're seeing the like slide downward of of Dabo right now. So I used to kind of staunchly say, I was like, "Yo, I know he's got what he's got at Clemson, but when you go into Dabo's house and you go down into the man cave and you find all of his memorabilia." that maybe he collects, it has the Alabama logo on it. That's where he hmm. played. That's where he won a national championship. 
Why would he not go up to the challenge? But recently I've completely squashed that notion. He is not fit for Alabama as a head coach. No, I don't and, think so. That's either. interesting. Uh, Sanders, I'll have to give that some more thought, but I don't even know my answer right now for who would eventually replace Nick. But yeah. Well, we I, know they're I, cool. We, do the commercials together. Colorado. Yeah, yeah. And I and we'll see what happens to Colorado. They're gonna be must see yeah. television, regardless. Yeah. How how um, good is it though? I think we can both agree on this that he didn't go to like Auburn. Yeah, we didn't go to like Florida or somewhere that like you and I would both have like mutual like angst because of it. I can sit back with my popcorn and watch Colorado for years if I have to like have fun with it. Uh, but if he were the Auburn coach, I'd be kind of miserable about it. I feel great right now in the East. Yeah. I, you know what sucks, uh, Logan, is we're getting rid of the divisions right when Tennessee's back. Yeah. And I'm looking at it where I'm like, I only have to worry about Georgia now on the calendar. Yeah. South Carolina, I think, has a huge step back this year. And then Florida is an absolute dumpster fire. And you yep. just look at it and you're like, Vandy, no contest. Uh, Mizzou, just another just rough situation. Uh, loser leading receiver to Georgia, Dominic Lovett. And you're just like, all right, is Brady Cook going to be the guy again? Are we doing this all over again? <laughs> um, and then, of course, we're going to go away from that. But, I mean, I think if you're a Georgia fan, you're excited about that. Because, like, this schedule, and I think people, Georgia fans get a little bit, you can speak more to this than I can, but, like, Georgia fans seem to get a little bit apprehensive when people point out like, oh, this schedule sucks. So when you're looking at the 2023 schedule, you're like, oh, they're going to walk into uh, back uh, three-peat. And it's like, well, when they throw out that we had Oklahoma on the schedule and it got taken away. And it's like, well, you were going to blast Oklahoma. Like, that's not one we're talking about. We want like better SEC games. Like Georgia just never played Alabama this past year. Like it kind of sucks that we just never saw that. So I think that's more of the issue is just that the SEC schedule is not great because if you're a Georgia fan, you looked at the home games this past year and you're like, what am I spending my money on? Like we had what one, I mean, you, you've been the leader in this of like no night games, at least like we don't get a, a night Terrible. game at Stanford. Like Terrible. it kind of sucks, right? Yeah, no, it's it. And when we shuffle the thing up, I would love to play like a, I mean, we play Auburn every single year, but yeah, throw Alabama more on the schedule. Yeah. Do you realize that we have yet to go to Texas A&M? Georgia has That's not insane. played ever like since 2012. Uh, what was that? How many? What year is this? Twenty three, eleven. Yeah, years we're looking at eleven years now. We still have not been to A and M. We're not scheduled to until twenty twenty four. If that holds true, mm. I mean, I'd like to see them more often. There's a lot of teams like when Arkansas came last year, albeit it was Arkansas, but they found themselves ranked number eight. Uh, it was a noon kickoff. The atmosphere was awesome. It was something different. It was a team that had risen at the moment for to be a top ten team, and and Georgia shut them out thirty seven nothing, which was pretty awesome. But I mean. <laughs> It was uh, it was just, yeah, I want to see more rotation. Florida, it's not our fault they're down right now. Um, and by the way, I think that game in the next couple of years is is very, very close to coming home and home. I, I do hmm. not see that going beyond the latest contract, which is through 24. What they should uh, do is home and home and then back to Jacksonville. Home and see, home, back to Jacksonville. See, you can't do a three-year schedule, though. I mean, you got you got to mm. have it some, an even because of the home-home and all the balance of the SEC schedule mm. and all that. So, uh, but it, Honestly, we've had this conversation a lot. It's either going to be Jacksonville all in or home and home, and that's it. I mean, that there's really no like three, four year rotation that makes any sense at all. Even the whole Jacksonville, Atlanta, Athens, Gainesville, just no home and home or Jacksonville. I would love to see it stay in Jacksonville, but I can just tell you based on what I've gathered around town and everything that Kirby's very adamant that he wants and in, in recruiting this and that, it's it's coming home very soon. Mm. Um, it'll bolster the schedule at home a little bit, but True. it's up to Florida to get better. I mean, look, you said they were a dumpster fire. I couldn't agree more. Uh, I don't think that in my lifetime, Georgia and Florida have been this far apart in what's happening. Mm. 
and I love it. But at the same time, it's like, okay, well, now the trip to Jacksonville doesn't look nearly as competitive, and it's going to be held against us here and there. So get better, Florida. Step it Graham up. Mertz is going to be their week one starter, it looks like. Florida is a mess. Their fans are not happy about it either, man. So No, which is great for both of us. Know, the rare right? thing Tennessee-Georgia fans can celebrate is Florida being a dumpster fire. Absolutely. Um, is Stetson the goat dog for you? He's the greatest of all time. I mean, like he's okay. he's the greatest for what he brought. Now, greatest doesn't mean most physical, most imposing, most dominant. Um, I don't want to sound like a 1980 Barker, but I mean, Herschel was a pretty damn good football player and he was pretty dominant. But but as far as like what he brought to the university, his story, which I think 10 years from now, you'll see I've referenced this earlier. Uh, Disney Plus will have a movie called The Underdog. It's going to be spelled D-A-W-G. It'll be the cutest thing ever. And that'll be the Stetson Bennett story. I mean, bringing national championships to Georgia, which has been starving for it for so long. And we were, we've been told by all our rival fan bases how down we've been for 40 years and this and that. It was great to get over that hump. And mm-hmm. then for him to do it again is just unbelievable. And I know he has a little bitter chip on his shoulder right now toward media and even some fans for doubting him. But uh, did you see that, by the way, at the, at the championship celebration in Sanford, he was being interviewed on stage and they were like, Hey, what was your favorite part about being a dog? And he just kind of like paused and he just started saying, well, all y'all doubted me and this and that. He kind of like came across as like giving the fan base some big double fingers, but that's, it's not, it's not, and there's a lot of fans that are upset about it right now, but they'll get hmm. over it because he brought national championships. Well, you just talked about it. Like there were Georgia yeah. fans. It took a really long time for a lot yeah. of them to get on board with Stetson being yeah. the guy. But this was something that I think Georgia fans, and I wonder if you were on this party with Stetson, is this that like he was never like you could tell how much someone actually watched Georgia based on how they described Stetson, right? Where they were like, oh, he's just this undersized game manager. It's like there's not one part of game management to Stetson no. Bennett. Like his best attribute is like his deep bombs and rolling out when things break down. Like he was awful again on short stuff in the national title game. You go through his PFF um just his his throw chart and where his hot zones are like it's he's so much more comfortable go just yeah. uh going over the top the big place ad mitchell in the title game last year like his best quality is that he's not afraid to uncork it and he does the phone thing against tennessee <laughs> like people eric Ainge went too far like eric Ainge, i'm not signing up for anything he's saying but there was one kernel which is part of what makes stetson stetson is he has this chip on his shoulder where he's not a punk, but yeah. he's extremely confident and he's yeah. extremely like, hey, y'all doubted me. Y'all didn't want me. You wanted JT Daniels. You wanted this. I'm just going to keep kicking the crap out of everybody week in, week out. Yeah. And he carries himself that way. It built the chip. I mean, yeah. like that chip is real. And I think that he's harnessed that to success for multiple national yeah. championships. And he wants to. He wants nothing more, I think, in his mind. Okay, I know you watched The Last Dance. Great, great documentary yeah. about Michael Jordan. I think it's almost a complex where it's like, all right, you doubt me? I took that personal. Mm-hmm. And I think he wants to build that in his mind all the way through the draft process yeah. and just hold that that mantra, by the way. So, yeah, I think it, it is people like – and here's, here's my sort of psychoanalysis too, and I think Stetson is guilty of this. There are the Eric Angels of the world. There are other bigger personalities nationally that have doubted Stetson for a long time. There are fans all over social media, both Georgia, Tennessee, Florida, Auburn, all the fans out there that, that have their like things to say negatively about Stetson. I do think Stetson is guilty of probably reading way too much social mm. media. And then you and I see this in, in government, I see this in sports. If you hang out on social media and you're thinking that that's reality, 
you know this, the, the 5% that are the loudest do not yeah. make up the other 95%. So you got to get that out of your mind is that, okay, these guys are. We don't all throw mustard bottles and golf balls at Tennessee. No, absolutely not. But I mean, we want to act like that on social media. Exactly. Mm. So I think Stetson's probably seen a lot of it and just assumes, well, the whole world's against me. And all Mm. I did is win two national championships. Here's a middle finger for each one of them as I'm on my way out. I mean, it's like, just kind of step back, dude. Like the guys at the ceremony the other day, they were there to celebrate you. Those were these season ticket holders that get in fights on social media, backing you up. And they're here to like celebrate with you. But I think he got, just kind of caught in his feelings a little bit there. So who knows? But um, as far as Eric Ainge, by the way, uh, this is, this is happening. So we got a group of guys here in Athens that when those replica rings are available and mm. they are, I mean, that you can buy them for like 30, 40 bucks. We're actually making one with Eric Ainge's name on it and sending it to him because he 100% fueled that crowd in Athens that day, made them as loud as they could possibly be. And then I don't know if his comments before the national championship sparked Stetson or not, but, Eric Ainge will receive a package in the mail soon with a Georgia national championship ring with his name and in, uh, in, on the side of it. So he'll look forward to that. I hope he enjoys it. There's always kernels with him though, where it's yeah. like he was undefeated <laughs> against the UGA uh, and Athens and he did not have problems. He's a, he played there and he was like, Hey, he was talking. Yeah. If he had just left it at when I played there, wasn't an issue. I'm not really worried about it. It was not an issue when we put, when I played there, I won. Like, it's just not the same. Like yeah. that's fine if he had just left it at that but it's yeah. also like you said it just uh there was an uprising and i um i don't know like that game forever will haunt me in a multitude of ways but uh <laughs> it is what it is it's it's okay um they were not winning that game no matter what with jalen carter uh just it didn't matter no. double teams whatever like tennessee had no shot once because and then had a one-step drop jalen carter was in the backfield immediately and it's just there's nothing you can do like there was no uh, path I can have this conversation with you because I think we're both very cordial with this. And, I, and here's yeah. my hot take. And you you can hang up on me if you want to. I think <laughs> the rain that day mm-hmm. kept Tennessee in a New Year's Six Bowl. Okay. If it doesn't mm. rain, Georgia unleashes hell and fury on Tennessee that day. What you saw against TCU was clicking against the Vols. Mm. Uh, when, when Georgia went into halftime, Georgia took the reins or they put the reins on and said, we're done. Like, we are no longer – the rain is about to come. We are no longer playing our offensive game. Kirby said as much in his postgame little rah-rah speech to the, the, the Stetson and all the guys. Like, Stetson, we took the ball out of your hands. Tennessee could not stop Georgia that day. Mm. Tennessee or Georgia decided, hey, it's raining. We got a lead. We're running between the tackles, and we're just going to see what happens, and we'll just stop Tennessee. But if the rain's not there – I hate to tell you, man, I think Georgia scores like 55 points that night. I think you're right. They score enough, but like Tennessee missed three open bombs that Hendon never misses. So they're like, I can, the screen gaps are right there. If you go back through like just three touchdowns, just that he's hit all year long. So I think with no rain in that scenario, and I think he hits a couple of those. So I think it's probably like you said, where it's like 56, 30, 56, 28 or something. I don't know. I think Tennessee scores a lot more in a dome peach bowl atmosphere. Yeah, it would have been really ugly. I don't know. But yeah, dome peach bowl. I would have liked to have seen it. But I mean, Tennessee's not. But that's the whole thing is like Georgia is ahead of the curve. Like they're the premier uh, program. Like Tennessee does not have the bodies yet. I mean, they're coming in. We'll see this class. I'm very excited about Nico. We'll see. Um, but you have to, it's not one recruit recruiting class is going to flip this for Hypo and company. Like you have to keep building like Georgia has, you have to keep winning in the trenches and keep adding name after name after name. And then, yeah. I mean, you got to develop and it's just, it's not quick. Tennessee was ahead of the curve. And that's what I was telling Tennessee fans where I'm like, 
they should not be number one right now. Like this is insane that Hypo has gotten them to this point in a year and a half. Like this is pretty remarkable. But to win in the trenches and to really start competing week over week with the Georgias and the Bamas of the world and the Ohio States, really, it just it's going to take longer than this. It's going to yeah. be year three, well, year four. When Georgia won, what seventeen went to the national championship game, won the Rose Bowl. That was Kirby's second year. We all mm. felt the same way. It's like, oh my God, we're so far ahead of the curve, and, and we were. I mean, it was it was quick. Uh, but like you, but said, you didn't have like thirty players leaving the portal that no, year one 15, for Kirby. Fifteen was an extremely divisive year. I know Georgia won ten games, but there was a mm. lot of just like really, really crazy stuff going on behind the scenes, and uh, the team was very split. Thanks to Jeremy Pruitt. There's another yeah. name we can both hate on together. Uh, but but he divided the hell out of that team, and sixteen was a bit of a or seventeen. No, sixteen was a mess mm. when Kirby Smart took that over. Had a couple good guys, but yeah, seventeen was a big surprise. And then we felt like, oh, that's okay. That really sucks. We'll be right back next year. And it took another number one recruiting class, number two, number three recruiting class to finally get back to the playoff in twenty one. Mm. And uh, and the thing is, is like Bama's been there the whole time. Bama's not going anywhere right now either. I mean, like you and I both, Georgia, Tennessee still has to go through Bama. I know it didn't work out for them this year, thanks in part to Tennessee for knocking them out early. But mm. it's uh, it's yeah, they're going to be out there. So and LSU, I think, is going to get better and better. So. Just because like Tennessee rises or Georgia stays at the top doesn't mean that they just have this like let's just walk on into the playoff until it becomes twelve then we're all gonna go. Um, but yeah, there's a lot there's a lot of players out there outside of just yourself that you have to hope go your way. Is it Carson Beck or could it be someone different week one for Georgia? All money would be on Carson Beck, mine included. Uh, but Brock Vandegrift is a five-star kid from in the area, Prince Avenue, Christian in Athens, Gunner Stockton, another high four-star, almost five-star kid from North Georgia. And he was committed to South Carolina for a long, long time. But both of those guys are really, really good. But it's become very, very clear the last couple of years that Carson Beck has been being groomed by Todd Munkin to take over for Stetson when he's gone. Hmm. Uh, as long as he is healthy, I do believe it'll be Carson Beck. I think George is going to be a much heavier run offense next year. Hmm. Uh, I think I think Kendall Milton came on really strong this past year. Branson Robinson, who scored those uh, touchdowns late in the national championship, is a true freshman that just blows me away right now. Another year of him in the system, it'll be it'll be pretty darn good. But you got Roderick Robinson coming in from UCLA too, right? Who's that? Roderick? Is it Roderick Robinson, the UCLA? Uh, yes. Yeah, I, I'm, I'm trying to think of his name. I'm, I'm not. I'm not. I'm not as well versed in like the current recruiting cycles as like mm. I should be. Uh, but yeah, there's a lot of a lot of depth there. I mean, um, Dejon Edwards, another good name that's gonna be back next year running mm. the ball as well. But uh, but Carson's good. Carson's problem is is he comes in and, and doesn't protect the ball very well. Mm. Uh, he's thrown some really just head scratching interceptions over the years, albeit in garbage time. He hasn't really gotten meaningful close game snaps ever but i mean when he's in he just looks a little bit loose with the ball and if he's going to be the guy in charge then he'll have to clean some of that stuff up so yeah betting i'm sliding my chips on his table but i would not be shocked if one of those younger kids kind of makes a big step toward uh maybe fighting for some playing time as well do you think all three on the roster come opening opening day i do now ask me this next year I, i i'm not sure i think whoever whoever sees the writing on the wall this upcoming season in 23 that they're going to be number three in this cycle is probably going to go because Carson's got a couple years of eligibility left. This whole COVID year is like screwed up all yeah. eligibility. It's hard to even like get a count. When is the last year that it phases out? out? Is it next year that it phases out? I guess yeah, it's through twenty four, even twenty five. Yeah. If you were a uh, if you're a four year player and you played in twenty, so we got a little ways to go, which is crazy. Um, but yeah, it's I think the third guy in command will get the writing on the wall to leave, and then George is in on a couple of. Uh, 
like Dylan Rayola looks like he might be promising to come to Georgia, who would be pretty sick to get, and then others, and the Puglisi kid. But mm. I don't know. So some – no, the three will be there this fall. Those three will not be there the fall after. There, there's my long answer for you. The next Georgia defensive star we don't know is who? Jalen Walker. Hmm. You, saw, you saw him get a sack at the end of the national championship, put Duggan on his butt. Uh, but this kid, is, he as a true freshman this year, has just been – He's Nolan Smith, and he is he is hmm. your next Nolan Smith, and he's going to get bigger, he's going to get stronger, and he was right out of the gate, you know, a day one playing time guy. Uh, blocked a punt on special teams this year. He is just absolutely everywhere, and uh, yeah, I think he might be one of those household names coming up here in the next couple of years. And watch out for Bear Alexander. He's a little hmm. bit undersized, but you saw him just like play as if he was like Jordan Davis's size. Um, and I think he's got the potential to grow a little bit too, but he is he's our next sort of defensive lineman that's going to be a star as well. Where would Kirby go if Todd Monken took an OC job this uh, this cycle? Oh God, where would he go? Uh, that is a really good question. <laughs> I don't think I don't think Munkin is. I think Munkin is so happy with what he's doing. Mm. And uh, he doesn't hit the road recruiting. So he's not this like all over the place in the helicopter mm. dropping in on folks. He kind of makes it clear that he will, he does the on-campus recruiting and he's an X's and O's guy. So this, the strain of his workload is nowhere near what mm. you would think an offensive coordinator at Georgia should be. He's kind of made that, that clear. So the, the workload of the NFL is, it sounds appealing to a lot, but I don't think it'd be much different for, for Munkin. Um, so I don't think he's going to go anywhere. But gosh, if he were, I, I honestly do not even have an answer for that because we haven't thought about it. So um, who knows? I like it. Um, who will you miss most from this team? We'll end here, Logan. Oh gosh, I mean Stetson's the obvious answer, right? I mean the storyline, what will we got, the the just the the magic and everything. But uh, I, I honestly think who I'll miss the most is Darnell Washington. Hmm. Uh, that big tight end, man, he is such just like a team dude, loved this university, uh, got him out of Las Vegas in the recruiting cycle. And he's like seven foot nine. You know, he's one of the biggest people I'm exaggerating, obviously, mm -hmm. but he's one of the largest people you'll ever see on a football field. Did not have many touchdowns as a dog mm -hmm. uh, because his blocking ability was so incredibly valuable. Uh, throughout his entire career that you basically made him an extension of the offensive line, opened up holes, and then you would reward him every once in a while with, with a pass. He did not catch his first regular season touchdown in his career until Mississippi State this year. Hmm. He had one touchdown against Alabama in the loss last year. Then he finished strong with a touchdown against LSU and a couple of good catches in the postseason, but he's not a touchdown guy. However, I think in the NFL, he's going to be an absolute monster catching the ball because you're all of a sudden going to have guys around your size and you'll be used more of as a passing passing threat. Uh, but we call him Big O because he wore zero, man. But, I mean, every time he touched the ball, like my wife would go nuts every time he touched the ball. He's just a fan favorite and very quiet dude, did his job, and, and I think he's going to be a second, maybe early third-round pick, and he's going to go thrive somewhere. And uh, helped us out a lot, man. That's why when he was hurt in the SEC champion, I mean the, the Peach Bowl, the biggest stress going into the national championship wasn't his catching ability. It was, can he block on the edge? And turned out we didn't really need him, but it was nice to have him out there anyway. So yeah, I'll miss I, he was a good dude. I won't miss him uh, next year. I Logan. I I we, that's, we got, we got many in the wing, man. We got a uh, Oscar Delps ready to step up. 
He doesn't have the same size. Like, Oscar Dells could be a good player, but I'm not as concerned about him on the edge. Remember, you got Brock Bowers for one more year to worry about as well. Well, hold on. Tennessee was like, the game plan is Brock Bowers (laughs) is not going to beat us. Anyone else can beat us, but Brock Bowers is not going to beat us. Yeah. Uh, Yeah. That, uh, We'll see, but you got to come to Knoxville next year, which is. Uh, I actually hate how late in the season it is. It's cold. I, um, my, it's cold. It's just so I've got a group, my wife and a few friends that for a decade now, mm. like that's our annual trip, biannual trip, no semi-annual yeah. trip. We go to Knoxville. We get a cabin. We have a mountain weekend. We do go hiking. Yeah. Uh, we go tailgate on the on the Vol Navy. We do all that stuff. I love that trip. Absolutely love it. But it's in the fall. It's it's mm. perfect time. Now we're going up there in early winter. Yeah, there's going to be no fall foliage left. It's going to be it might snow for all we know. I mean, heck, it's the Saturday of Thanksgiving week next year. Yeah, there's so, no. Foli- yeah, no, that's long yeah. gone. Yeah, I, I hope like back to your uh, reshuffling of the schedule. I hope we can get Tennessee back in like early mid-October like it used to be. So, yeah. And I want Georgia Auburn back at Thanksgiving because that's where it belongs. I don't know. Yeah, I think you're Auburn. less likely to get that one back. Yeah, me too. They're yeah, they fall a lot over there, man. I, but i get it that was one of those where i'm like I, I get it and people were like well they won't be dominant forever i'm like well it still sucks for right now like it, <laughs> it still sucks for a while i don't think yeah. they're gonna be falling off all that much no no but there Good you go stuff, man logan thank you so much for making the time we can listen to you on 96 and 960 the ref um do you say the ref yeah 960 the ref that's okay it. six to six to ten a.m every single yeah. morning it sounds weird when I say the ref because I'm like, it yeah. doesn't like the ref. It feels like I'm not finishing the thought. You know what I mean? Where I'm like 96 ref. And I'm like, oh, OK, yeah, um, there you go. Listen to you there early, early morning. The co-host of the morning show absolutely. on there in Athens. Um, you got the second string podcast as well, though. Yeah, we do that once a week. A buddy yeah. of mine that's in this in the building. We talk for about an hour. It's good stuff. There you go. So, uh, enjoy it, man. All right. Well, thank you so much for making the time, Logan. Thanks, I greatly appreciate man. it. Yeah. Absolutely. Get you a nap. And uh, I need it. <laughs> I stayed up for you. Usually I'm asleep right now, but I did this for you today. Well, I appreciate that, sir. No Congratulations again on Thanks. the back to back national titles. Chase. Absolutely. All right, man. See you, Logan. Catch you later. All right, we're back here on the Chase Most Podcast, taping this late on a Tuesday. First timer on the podcast, Bob Phelan, Oriole Report, all things Orioles, great follow. Keep up with him there uh, because the Baltimore Orioles are a good baseball team again, and that is something we have not been able to say for a very, very long time. Bob, good evening, sir. How are you? I'm good. How are you? Thanks for having me on here. Thanks for being here. Um, so, yeah, that's kind of the the impetus here is that the Orioles going or it's amazing that we're only a month away from uh spring training just about and um the Orioles to this point though and I want to get your perspective on this uh, as a uh someone who covers this team day in day out I think for me and a lot of the folks at Fangraphs and all across uh baseball Twitter and baseball media are just kind of perplexed at what Mike Elias and the ownership group are doing this offseason based on just the the big time just development year uh, that you saw from the Orioles. Obviously, they were sellers in a way at the deadline moving Trey Mancini and company, but it was still like, hey, the winner, I think they're going to be a little bit more active. You saw the rumblings when it first started as the, the Orioles are going to be a little more active than in years past. And here we are on January 17th and they have not really been active. Why, what is the sense that you get as to why the Orioles have been quiet this offseason? 
Yeah, it's a good question. Um, I think they plan. I mean, ownership is a whole other issue. Who knows what the, the budget, quote unquote, is for this team? You would think, you know, they have one of the lowest payrolls in, in the sport for a few years now in a row. Mm-hmm. It would be like, all right, it's go time. Let's build on this. But I think they, they must have tried. You heard rumors that they were in on a bunch of pitchers. I'm guessing they just got outbid or, you know, some players like Chris Bassett went chose Toronto over Baltimore. Maybe I heard there was a competitive offer for him. No confirmation. But I think it's just they missed out a lot. But. They were able to, so far, improve on the fringes, and hopefully there's still a trade or two up their sleeves before uh, the season gets going. Yeah, it's just like Tywin Walker, Jamison Tyon, like guys like that where it's like we didn't expect them to be in on Justin Verlander. Like you understand you're not going to convince guys like that or DeGrom or whoever to sign up uh, for Baltimore this year, but like an arm or two on that number four number five just veteran consistent arm that you can count on i'm just surprised that they have not gone down that road at all do you think they just they don't do it at all at this point or do you think there is hope that someone who's still out there they will they'll circle back on and maybe bring in i think the thought process is they have a bunch of guys like a cal bradish dean kramer you know austin voth even since he came over from the nationals like they have a a pretty decent mix of like mid at best to back end of the rotation starters. And, you know, I think they want to continue to let them develop. I think they only want to, at this point, I think, you know, they brought in Kyle Gibson, who mm-hmm. solid veteran guy back end of the rotation. At this point, I think if they do anything, there's still a chance they could trade for a, a Corbin Burns, Brandon Woodruff, potentially from Milwaukee, maybe get a, try to get a starter from Miami they have an abundance, you know, if a Shane Pablo Bieber Lopez ever potentially available. Yeah, I think they if they get a guy at this point, they want it to be like a mid to top end guy. And mm. they have the farm system to pretty much, you know, if they're willing to do it, get get anyone they want just because they have one of the best farm systems in baseball. It's very deep in, on the hitter side, especially. So if they want to make the splash, they can. I don't know if it's going to be before the season or maybe at the trade deadline, depending on how things go in the first half. It's just like if you're an Orioles fan, are you frustrated because of the development and because you're kind of ahead of schedule? It seems like they're kind of like, hey, look, we did not think we were going to be around 500 last year. We're sticking to our guns. It doesn't matter. We're not going to buy in to like, oh, too much too soon. I don't, but I, I just, I don't think baseball and sports works like this. I get antsy with organizations that are like, well, this doesn't fit our timeline. So this is just not going to be what we do. It's like, you don't have a say in your timeline sometimes. Like the Padres could have just waited this out forever with their farm system. And AJ Preller was like, look, we have some stars. I have Fernando Tatis Jr. here. I have drafted really well. We've developed really well, but like, there's still a tipping point where we have to add guys we have to add the Manny Machados of the world to jumpstart this thing and get us into real contention because we have the Dodgers in our division we have the Giants we have um the Braves we have the the Mets in the NL and it's just like it's gonna be really hard but we've done well we've drafted well and that's priority one but eventually you have to dive into the deep end and when you're the Orioles right now like you absolutely nailed it with Adley Rutschman and you have these young cornerstones I mean Cedric Mullins has been awesome you've developed well like all across the board like you can you could use some more consistent help in the infield i think so they're probably not done there but 
the Blue Jays have gone for it. The Blue Jays were like, yeah, we have Vladimir Guerrero Jr. and Bo Bichette, but like, we're still going to go out and be aggressive. We're going to trade for Matt Chapman. We're going to sign Brandon Bell. We're going to be aggressive and continuing to add and challenge the Yankees and the, the Rays, really, uh, year in, year out. And I think the Orioles could. Like, the Orioles could. I mean, they're right there. If you're a big Blue Jays guy, I'm like, the Orioles do a couple things. The, the AL East is right there. I don't think anyone is all the way sold that the Yankees have this unlocked. The Rays had the season they just had. I just, I don't know. I feel like if I'm an Orioles fan, I, I'm just perpetually annoyed. But this year in particular, I'm I'm very annoyed. Yeah, it's very frustrating because, like you said, this seemed like as good a time as any to strike. Mm-hmm. And I almost feel like that the surprising winning season last year, I almost put Elias in a position and the rest of the front office in a position where they might be a little ahead of schedule, which to me is a good thing, but I think they still like seven or eight of their top 10 prospects will be in double A or triple A with the chance Mm -hmm. to make their debuts this year. I think they're trying to balance, like give these guys an opportunity to win a job, but I don't know when you're that close to making the playoffs and then anything can happen. I think you just got to, you kind of got to push your chips in a little bit more than they have so far. You know, there's still a little bit of time in the off season, but Free agency is pretty much over, and, and time is winding down. Is there anybody you think they could still add? If you had to guess right now on January 17th that they add anybody, it, whether it's pitcher, bullpen, starter, infielder, like if you had to guess, who feels like an Oriole who's still out there potentially? Man, I don't know. Uh, <laughs> Michael Waka has been you know linked oh, to them man. a little bit, but I'm not buying that. That's another guy that's like a Kyle Gibson type. I don't know if you need yeah. another one of them. So like I said, I think it would probably be trade. Like, I'd love to find a way to get Christian Yelich in one of Woodruff or Burns from huh. the Brewers because they kind of could use a left-handed bat. Yelich is there. He's expensive. The Brewers are cheap, just like the Orioles. So maybe they can work something out <laughs> between the contracts and the prospects. But that seems like a, a pipe dream at this point mm. in the offseason. But, yeah, I think it's basically going to be like, let's see what we got with Gunnar Henderson and Adley Rutschman. If they hit the ground running to start 2023 and some of these other guys come up, then then maybe they make a move from there. But... Yeah, I mean, still exciting team for next year, regardless. I mean, like I said, they, they got Adam Frazier, who's a little bit better than Rugnet Odor. Kyle Gibson, probably a little bit better than Jordan Lyles. Like they, James McCann, a little bit better than Robinson Chirinos. They made these small upgrades on the fringes, but yeah, it's, like you said, it's a little frustrating. Who do you think pops in spring training? You're all in on the talent pipeline, and like we talked about, like the Orioles have one of the best pipelines in baseball right now, and Elias deserves a lot of credit for what he's built there, but who's next? Like, who is next up that you think is going to contribute right away for this Orioles team in 2023? I think could be Jordan Westberg. He's hmm. a, another infielder like Gunnar Henderson. A little bit older, was drafted out of college. Mississippi State, he's got good exit velocity, showed a lot of power this past year, hitting 27 home runs in A AA and A combined. Can play short, third, second, um, I'd like to see him and Adam Frazier split time at second base at least mm. to start the year. If he can, you know, if Westbrook can win that job, he he had more AAA time than than Gunner, and he just got passed over because Gunner has pretty much star potential at his age and in his production. And another guy, I think he he made his major league debut. I don't even think he's prospect eligible anymore. But Kyle Stowers, an outfielder, mm. power hitting lefty, I think he could get a, a bigger run, a better chance to get some everyday at bats maybe take away from Austin Hayes a little bit in left field and right field so those are be the two I think are next but there's also uh, some other guys like Colton Kowser, an outfielder first round pick 
from a couple years ago and Joey Ortiz, who I think a lot of uh, people are sleeping on. He's like incredibly good fielding shortstop who had a OPS over a thousand in the second half of last season. So he's a breakout candidate as well, but Jorge Mateo would have to be traded first in order for him to get an opportunity. I noticed you didn't say Grayson Rodriguez there. That's true. It's easy to forget about him because he should have been, you know, already not a prospect anymore after he was getting ready to come up, make his major league debut. Then he hurts his back and never gets the opportunity. But yeah, you're right. He, he's probably the number one guy. I mean, he's got, do you think he date? Is he on the opening day roster? I do. I do. I think him and DL hall will both make the opening day roster. Hmm. Um, and I think Grayson has a chance to be one of the, the rare pitching prospects who has a lot of success right away. Mm-hmm. Obviously, I mean, he's still young and has to take his lumps, and I'm sure he'll have some growing pains and learning experiences, but he's pretty polished. He's got five, four or five-plus pitches, and wouldn't be surprised if, uh, if he could be that mid-to-top-of-the-rotation type of arm right away. If you had to guess why Holiday is a star right away, the Orioles and the pros why do you think that is his walk strikeout numbers as an 18 year old in (laughs) Mm -hmm. full season ball or you know half of his time I think was full season other was like a short season but I mean he had like 19 walks 13 strikeouts I think Mm. and he's 18 he's already pretty polished uh approach at the plate in the field he can play second shortstop pretty well where do you think he plays I think he'll ultimately be a shortstop I think he can stick there um might be better at second base if he committed himself there, but I think he'll be passable. And, and the bat will play better if he can stick there. Hmm. I think he's he's got potential to, to add some power to his frame and and kind of be like another Gunnar Henderson type who kind of rises through the ranks pretty quickly at shortstop. Do you think they work next to each other on the left side of the infield going forward? Is that a core that you're comfortable with? That's the dream, but I think <laughs> Holiday's – He's still two or three years away, I'm sure, yeah. from making his major league debut. So, you say then, that, Gunner but I just be, saw uh, Michael Harris on my team pop up and never play a second of Triple A ball, and just it—you never know with some of these guys. They can just true. skip Double A, and he's super young, and just they're already handing him the keys. Von Grissom might have the keys uh, this year out of the gate for the Braves too. I don't know. I mean, y'all don't operate the same way, but the Braves do trust their pipeline and. The Orioles are kind of the same way. We, we think it's like, oh, they can't be up by uh, 22 or 21, 20 years old. And it's like, uh, some of these guys can. I don't know. Yeah, I, I like the way that the, the new front office has handled prospects where, I mean, they will jump them level by level. Mm-hmm. Like, they're not, like, slow playing them. They're, they're moving them up. If they prove they can master one level, they'll move them up to the next and keep pushing them until they hit a point where they need to adjust. So. Yeah, and I wonder if there's a – is Max Freed available by any chance? No, Max Freed's <laughs> not. But you know what? The Braves have a question. Like, the five spot, like, Bryce Ellard, is it him? Is it, like, what is Mike Soroka at this point? We could give you an Ian Anderson, like, if Ian Anderson doesn't figure it out uh, come spring. Because, like, there's just not enough spots. Like, someone's going to be the odd man out and start in AAA. Uh, maybe two guys starting out in AAA. And I just – I wonder with Soroka – how much is too much where it's just been so much and he's the most talented of the group and we've seen the best of mike soroka really is just not fair and pitches in a way that we just don't see in baseball anymore with this babbit just insane doesn't matter who you are he is going to make you ground out um i don't know i miss watching him pitch all the time but i don't know i don't even know what his value is around the league like if they were to make him available like i have no idea what mike soroka would command uh 
for anybody? That's a very good question. Yeah, I mean, I, I hope he comes back healthy and, and strong because he was fun to watch. Yeah, we'll see. Um, if you had to guess who the best war of anyone on the Orioles this year is, who do you think it is? It's not a question. It's Adley Rutschman. No question. Yeah, not even Cedric Mullins, no a, one else? No. I think he's a five or six war guy year yeah. in and year out, at least in his prime. You know, okay. If he's healthy, he's got great defense, obviously. <laughs> a great, he just great approach at the plate and even the, the, the small things like in the clubhouse and, and as a team leader, I think he – that obviously doesn't get accounted for more, but I think, you know, he, he is the cornerstone and hopefully they lock him up. That'd be another thing that could get Orioles fans a little less perturbed of this offseason if they announce a 10 year deal hmm. with Adley, but uh, we'll see if that happens. Um, maybe Gunner. I think those two, even though they're the, the young guys, I think they have the chance to, to lead the team in war. Obviously Mullins, he had a great year in 2021, a little bit, of a come down last year, but still a really solid player with his defense. If he can just get a little bit of pop back um, from what he had in 2021, he could, he could be up there too. What's the biggest difference between Rutschman and Weeders? Oh gosh. Um, I'd say the bat speed hmm. um, is pretty noticeable. If you just scout the stat line, it's like, Oh, okay. Two great catchers putting up great numbers. But uh-huh. when you watched Weeders play, you could see his bat was a little bit slow couldn't get to the the velocity up in the zone as much and Adley's bat speed is ridiculous. Hmm. <laughs> he's he's right on pitches and yeah, there are some some similarities, but I think Adley is all around a much better player in pretty much every area. If you had to compare Gunner to a Oriole of yesteryear, who would you compare him to? Hmm. That's a good question. He reminds me of Corey Seeger, I'm sure. Huh. That uh, he's not a former Oriole, but it just seems like that style. High praise, player. though. Lefty bat with some power, maybe fringe defense at shortstop, but mm. enough to get by. Could be a better third baseman if uh, if he moves there permanently. I can't. I'm trying to think of an Oriole. I don't know that lefty power swing. It's it's pretty special, and he's proven in his minor league career that he works hard and he improves and. He, I don't know. Like the sky's the limit with him. If I've never seen someone improve as much as he did from 2021 to 2022. There you go. I like it. Um, we'll end on this. Are they a playoff team as currently constructed right now? It's tough. Uh, I think it would take some some good breaks. I would think you know not not much regression from guys that had good years last year. Mm-hmm. Some breakouts need Gunner and Adley to stay healthy and be for real. I think it's borderline as it stands mm. right now. I think they'll be competitive for, you know, 80 to 85, 86 win season. And it just depends on on what some other teams do at that point. But maybe a move at the trade deadline and push them over the top. I lied. I have one more question. All if right. you had to guess, one through nine, what the starting, uh, who the starting players are, one through nine, who do you think it is? All right. Let's see. Starting in left, let's go left, center, right. All right. Left field, who's the opening day starter? I have Austin Hayes. Okay. Center field. Cedric Mullins. Uh-huh. Right field. I'll say Kyle Stowers. Oh, okay. DH. Santander. Anthony Santander. Okay. Third base. Gunner. Shortstop. Jorge Mateo. Okay. Second base. I will say Adam Frazier. Okay. First base. Ryan Mountcastle. Catcher. <laughs> Adley Rutschman. Maybe. There you go. 
that's not bad. I mean, I, I don't think what there's no way that the second base and shortstop situation is the exact same by the season's end, right? Yeah, I kind of agree. Yeah. Yeah. I like it. Well, this has been great, Bob. I appreciate you making the time. What can the good folks check out from you all across the internet, Baltimore sports and life? What uh, can the good folks check out from you this week? Yeah, I'm writing a little bit on Baltimore sports and life, but my main thing with them is the BSL on the verge Orioles minor league podcast. And Mm -hmm. uh, if you search BSL on the verge on, on Twitter, we have a, and you, you want some Orioles minor league highlights. We got you covered there. And I'm also starting to write for pitcher list a little bit. So check me out there and I'm at the Oriole report. I'll post anything I do there as well. So appreciate you having me on. I'll come back anytime. Absolutely. Absolutely. This was great. Thank you so much. Uh, You have yourself a great rest of your week, and I'll talk to you soon. All right. Thanks. You too. This has been Ingram, radio voice of the Atlanta Braves, and I'm here to tell you that you've reached the end of today's episode of the Chase Thomas Podcast. As a friend of the podcast, I'd like to say thank you for listening to today's episode and hope you return for the next one. To show your support for the program, tell a friend or coworker or even a family member about the program. And if you're an Apple Podcast listener, leave the show a rating and a review. It goes a long way. That'll do it for me. But don't forget to listen to myself and the rest of the team at 680 The Fan and the Braves Radio Network this season. Go Braves! Chase, I think I'm going to hear more about you. I really do. I think you've got a way about you, but you're interviewing. Mm-hmm. You're, um, pleasantness you're smart so i think i'm going to hear big things about you nicely done nephew chase thomas podcast hell yeah